Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room's Top 10 episode for the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown, 2015. <laughs> Goodbye, but, year of our Time Lord. Yeah, it's been great. great riddance. So, it was, <laughs> Hello, it was Back sweet. to the Future 3. No. Yeah. Wait. Oh, nope. Uh, uh, we're gonna have to choose another uh, Time Lord, I suppose, for next year for 2016. Maybe Doctor uh, Benedict Cumberbatch Strange. Oh God, that next his year. Does it come out next year? It does. Oh boy. Anyway, uh, this is our uh, sixth, I believe, annual. Although we haven't always been called the same podcast name, but this is the sixth time we've all gathered to talk Jesus. to you about our favorite movies of oh, the year. Oh my God. Everybody, does this make everybody feel uh, young? Young at heart, so at least. Youthful. Well, I'm not 30 yet, so I feel great. Oh, go to hell. Rub it in, fuckball. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we have some diverse movies this year. Uh, not that we didn't last year, but I feel like this year we have a lot uh, a lot less overlap than we usually did. Thanks a lot to David, but uh, we're going to see that coming up. Our format, in case you're just joining us for the first time, uh, we all talk about our choices. Uh, it was going to be on the. We are going to go in the order of Katie patches David from ten through one. Every two, I will contribute one of my top five uh, because I believe, as we put it, the first podcast, Dave has a real job, so he doesn't see as many movies. <laughs> uh, we're going to stick to that. I feel like that's uh, throwing shade piece. at us in some ways. Is that? Am I reading <laughs> we that correctly? Don't have real jobs. Okay. Well, it started because when it started out, you guys were all like, you know, hoofing it freelancers, and now you're all like Vanity Fair, Thrillist. Rolling Stone, and I'm the one who feels like I don't have a real job. You work so, at MTV. You know. It's an institution. That's true. I see way fewer movies than I used to, so there's at least that. Well, we all feel underwatched, but we all have some, I feel, excellent choices. Oh, uh, maybe- Actually, David, do you feel underwatched? This is a genuine question. Like, uh, do you me? feel like, yeah, like, do you feel like you have, you still have missed stuff that was important? No. no. Yeah, I didn't think and, so. And frankly, I, I, I understand all of, uh, not, I'm not speaking for us, but for other people in our profession, uh, that location and uh, the beats that we cover make it varying degrees of difficulty to see everything. But I'm always sort of surprised when I say that I've seen everything that I need to see and people are like, how, what, why? And they're like very people within our field. And I'm like, well, you know. Well, they also feel compelled to see a lot of stuff that you choose not to. Well, I mean, I didn't see like pixels. Right, exactly. Uh, but I... Uh, I don't know. I feel like it is eminently possible um, so long as the particular constraints of what you're asked to cover in, in this line of work uh, to see everything. That you well, this, 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 this. But well, you know when what? You came back, when you came back saying you'd seen Daddy's Home, that was the real, uh, <laughs> the real coup of the end of it. You should say that uh, as of this recording, none of us have seen Star Wars The Force Awakens no. and will not be included in this podcast in any way. That's um, it could yeah, be great. When we, when we do review Star Wars, I will be very interested to ask if it would have made any of our top tens. So I uh, look forward to that in a couple of days. Or no, by the time you're hearing no, this, we'll have seen Star it's Wars. In the past. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You'll, have, you'll know already if we regret not putting Star Wars on this. Yeah. Or if not, you should go back and listen to that yeah. uh, and add another couple of hours worth of podcasting to uh, this, this top tens uh, extravaganza. Uh, so I'm going to kick it off this year uh, with my number five pick uh, because it doesn't actually appear on anybody else's list which is uh inside out which yeah. for me um 
it goes beyond just being a good Pixar movie because I, it, I am emotionally engaged with it uh, in a way that I hadn't with any previous Pixar film literally every time I see it. You don't love Mater? What's wrong with you? Oh, yeah, well, you know, he just, he's so, uh, I don't know, precise with his, uh, I was going to make some sort of racist Mater joke, but it didn't come to me fast enough. Don't go there. And I want to talk, talk about Inside Out, because it's so good. Uh, everything from the design of the emotions to the way that Bing Bong was used in the press and then revealed in the movie, to Riley's, uh, like, ultimate uh, realization uh, that, you know, sadness and happiness need to be mixed to make the most powerful memories. Uh, it just works for me in a way that Pixar hasn't as a single movie since maybe The Incredibles. And since we've seen that, uh, you know, sort of echoed in other superhero slash family movies since Inside Out felt really fresh. And uh, I thought you were a big fan of Brave. Yeah, see, (laughs) I I did a lot of thinking about Brave, but that movie doesn't hold up uh, even halfway through its runtime, as I'm sure you guys heard. I have not revisited Brave, I will say that. Oh, man bears uh, but yeah. anyway inside out was good i really enjoyed it it was my top five movie of the year and we're going I, to uh, i wanted to put inside out on my list and then just couldn't figure out how to do it oh i i had no interest in putting inside out on my list because i did not care for this movie whatsoever yeah you are definitely in the minority <laughs> there but it's interesting I, I yeah i think i i'm feeling like i'm done with pixar i mean not forever but i just feel like they are no longer uh, the beacon of hope for animation to me that they once seemed. I no longer look forward to their movies. I didn't even bother to see The Good Dinosaur uh, deliberately, which sounds like one of their stranger efforts. Maybe I'll catch up with it down the road. But I, this movie left me feeling completely flat. I thought it was so much... Uh, yeah, I mean, we talked about it at length in uh, episode number. Someone help me out here. <laughs> oh, God. me. Blank. On the spot. <laughs> There's an episode yeah, out there, there, and it's a great Sometime review. Sometime in yeah. June. Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, since we've started doing 2010s, we used to have to list episode numbers, but now mm-hmm. we have the handy search feature at fightinginthewarroom.com. <laughs> Yay! Man, I loathe Bing Bong, and the idea... You loathe Bing Bong? I, I appreciate that. I loathe Bing Bong. I was... Well, I don't want to reveal his fate, lest someone in this film not... Unless someone listening hasn't seen it, but uh, <laughs> I... I appreciate that You did not wish well for story, Bing Bong. Yes, I appreciate that a story can be less about what it's about and more about how it's about it, but... Uh, even having said that, I found, for an adult audience at least, the self-satisfaction with delivering the notion that happiness needs to be tinged with sadness in life in order to uh, to have a more fulfilling emotional experience and be more of a person was, was so facile and uh, unmoving to me. Uh, I just did not care for this movie, despite all the hockey. Love the hockey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, it did work for me, David, as somebody who has emotions about the loss of innocence still to this day. (laughs) I I think it also creates a lot of innocence to lose. (laughs) It's not not necessarily a movie for kids. I mean, I think parents and kids watch this movie together. And that's why if it seems facile, it's because it's to be enjoyed, not as a kid's movie, but a movie to be enjoyed with kids. Uh, But I do think that it creates empathy for an adult like i was sitting there crying a little bit maybe um just because i could imagine sharing this moment with a kid or being there myself um i don't know it's it's not a nostalgic movie but it's it's a very empathetic movie i loved it yay so moving into what didn't uh or what pushed inside out maybe off of Katie's list since we're on to number 10s. Oh yeah. At the bottom of the top of the barrel 
is Matt Damon stranded on a red planet. Katie has picked yeah. The Martian. Yeah, I had a really hard time ranking my list, um, but kind of I settled on the bottom half being movies that I really liked but still felt too long, which felt like a trend this year. Um, but The Martian really worked for me. It's uh, I, I love it when big formula movies come together in this way and kind of are setting out to do one thing and they do it really well. And there's this beauty in the movie and the way that he's stranded on this planet that... I feel like I didn't think Ridley Scott, who's director, like had in him anymore. And it's really funny and entertaining. Matt Damon gives us great performance. I'm also a sucker for movies that are anchored by a star, like really doing their star thing. And you can't imagine anyone but Matt Damon in this performance. Um, and it, then it became a really big hit, which also makes me happy. I, when movies that are well made by thoughtful people do really well with audiences, it feels like everything is clicking together. So The Martian worked for me on basically all levels. Hmm. Here, here. Yeah, I liked it. I'm just, I wish it was slightly, I don't know. I was going to say slightly more dramatic, but now I'm remembering my poem sweating when he's like jumping through space. It definitely loses momentum. I mean, I like this film quite a bit, but it doesn't stick its landing after the whole journey. Hmm. Which might uh, keep it off my list. I think it sticks its landing, but this is like what I was saying about it being a little too long. Like it, it, it doesn't have, it loses a little bit of energy by being too long, but I don't think that's too much to his detriment. I uh, I just didn't understand the movie where he was trying to get back to Earth when he was living the dream. <laughs> I remember you. So I remember you tweeting away. this. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. Uh, nothing but disco to keep him company. If you were shocked yeah, on Mars, I really struggled it's... with the basic premise of this movie um, and did not enjoy it for that reason. <laughs> he could have just been <laughs> streaming MP3s through that Lem chat device the whole time. Oh yeah, been like, what's what's up with Hotline Bling down there? Oh, the idea of being trapped on Mars with no entertainment at all, like, that, I would, I would die. What do you mean no entertainment? He had 70s television shows. And all of that 70s television. And just, did the 70s TV make it into the movie, or was that just in the book? I can't remember. I don't think it made it into the movie. Oh, I thought he's sitting there watching, like, Dukes of Hazard or something. Oh, what? Seconds. Maybe, maybe he was. I need to watch this movie again. There's only too many Dukes yeah, of Hazard references. Yeah, to find those real details. And- Gotta yeah. watch this movie again. Was he watching Gotta television? Watch it closely for all the Easter, all the Dukes <laughs> of Hazard Easter eggs. Uh, next up, Mr. Matt Patches with his number ten about how we all got screwed in the financial crisis. Yes, mm. David's going to be disappointed in me. Um, yeah, I picked the Big Short for my number you guys ten. All picked movies I don't yeah. like. Yeah, <laughs> this is a great start to the show. Um, I, you know, I saw this movie later in the year. Uh, but I didn't think I had seen anything this kind of ferocious in terms of Adam McKay attacking the screen. It's very rough around the edges, it, but it feels very risky, even when it's doing things that we've seen in plenty of other movies before. Breaking the fourth wall, uh, you know, the stylistic choices don't necessarily impress me as much as the cynicism and the anger and how that can work as comedy or how comedy can be woven into that. Uh, you know, The Big Short is very much a documentary to me. I think we discussed this on the review, uh, comparing it to something like Wolf of Wall Street, which is a, more of a character piece about personality and about excess. And this is about teaching us something. Um, and it does it so in a, in a really dynamic way. You're trying to hang on and Adam McKay has one hand on your shoulder guiding you and he's using the other one to punch everyone in the face. It's fucking awesome. And um, I was really impressed. You know, as I said, it's it's more of a documentary. All these Big name actors, Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt, Steve Carell, Christian Bale, they're all kind of there. They're pawns to tell this story, to kind of get this exposition pushed through so you have an understanding. But I really was captivated by by Christian Bale. I really think the more I kind of 
consider that performance and uh, inhabiting that character, the quirks being one aspect, but just like this feeling of dread surrounding him and kind of just sitting there waiting for the for the ball to drop. I mean, it's such it just twists my gut. I really enjoyed the Big Short. I think the uh, I like the Big Short a lot too. I think the style of it maybe bothered me a little bit more. Like it felt so desperate to keep your attention and frantic in that way, and I kind of wanted it to have. A little more confidence. I mean, I, you know, it's definitely bold the way that it, like, brings in celebrities to explain things to you. And I find those things entertaining. But I wanted, like, less of a sense that it was like, don't get bored, don't get bored, just stay here, please. But it seems like a um, criticism of the audience, too. It's like, you yeah, know, I'm angry at you, too. This is your fault. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's definitely angry at all, at all of us. Like, the anger of it is very impressive to me. I like... You know, it sends you out of the movie with such a powerful feeling, which I think is might be why it's uh, kind of popping up in awards now, because you walk out of it like you can't ignore what that movie is presented you with. So I do like that. Everyone get ready to bet against the water drought. Get, oh bet against the almond farms. That's what uh, Michael Burry is doing now, and that's the, the greatest lesson of uh, the big short. Listening to death metal and betting against water farms. You know, I started listening to more Motorhead after this movie, and I'm kind of... Really? I might be, I might be on Michael Burry's page in terms of being productive and having people screaming into my ears. Kind of fun. David, why well, remind us why you hated this. Very one line. I mean, I, I, I just thought it was sort of, I mean, it's supposed to be noxious. I, that's sort of the idea, but uh, I didn't find it rewarding. I thought that it was uh, how it laid it out was just sort of, uh, un, I don't know, un, uninteresting. And uh, uh, I didn't really like how any, uh, all the characters felt like cartoons to me. I never bought into uh, Steve Carell's moral crisis. Um, I felt like Christian Bale, who can be just a god awful actor as he is here, is uh, Damn. you know away yeah, from the human unfair. realm. Um, I I think that this movie is is it ta- tr- it's trying to tap into too many tones at once. Um, I and I really uh, it was unpleasant without ever being redeeming and a harbinger of doom without <laughs> clarifying. Uh, anything about it. it has the right attitude in that sense but um yeah felt, would you i don't know I, I i still feel like wolf of wall street covers all the same basis even if it's not handling this particular crisis right would you have been happier if i went with my i was back and forth here i was almost going to go with jupiter ascending but i pulled, <laughs> your number 10? I pulled back i am so high on this movie and I don't want to troll by <laughs> putting it on. Did you watch it again recently? I did. I, I don't oh, want to troll man. by saying that it's really one, like one of the 10 best movies, 10 favorite movies of the year, but it's so crazy. I don't know. I, I, it'll be I, uh, on Thrillist's like, top 20, which we're publishing this month. If, so. a, uh, if I could put a GIF in a podcast, I would put in that GIF of Eddie Redmayne yelling, well, <gasps> consider, which is your, uh, or thank you, thank you, Academy. Thank is that you, Academy. Says? Yes. <laughs> Oh, well, let's move on to something that David did like with his number 10 pick, which actually overlaps with the rest of our lists later on down the road. So how do we do this? Do I not really talk about it at, at length here? Because No, we'll I think you get to talk about higher. it at length first. Yeah, you get yeah, the moment. And we all when we get, get to, to just later. slot it in okay. when we get higher up. But it's, it's well, Mad Max Fury Road. Mad Max Fury Road, yeah. Uh, love this movie. <laughs> uh, I, was, I say this to someone who wasn't particularly excited for... Fury Road because I have no special affection for the previous Mad Max movies. Um, I do like George Miller. Love Pig in the City. Never die. Uh, (laughs) But um, yeah, I I was really flabbergasted by this film, not just on the uh, logistical level. I wrote in my review that it felt like he had sort of absconded with $160 million of Warner Brothers money to a desert 
in wherever. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head where they shot it. Namibia, and was sending I think. Them, Namibia and was sending them footage back, like ransom notes. Uh, <laughs> well, it is funny know. because this movie was surrounded in kind of this disaster tale. Like it was held yeah, for it, it, a year or two. It had a lot of press about going over budget. Yeah, it was going to be a huge bust. Yeah, another reason not to pay too right, much exactly. attention to movies before they're finished. Uh, but the yeah, I mean, I, so I think that on a on a technical level, it's rather astonishing. I think the uh, not just the practical effects and and the uh, grunginess of the world and how anarchic it is and how uh, aggressively that deviates from the safety of so much blockbuster filmmaking these days, but also as it's become the narrative around this movie because it is the narrative of this movie it's a tale of of female empowerment i think that it's it really shows not just that women should be strong but also how much of a cancer men can be which was a recurring theme in a lot of movies this year uh and and some movies men were entirely absent we'll get to those uh in in a lot of movies such as fury road they were with the exception of of nux and mad max in this movie who were sort of unwilling uh, unwitting allies who were sort of uh roped into this plot by imperator furios's plot uh i i mean i think that even if it bur- uh, it borders on the silly with the volvani volvolini whatever they're called volvolini uh, uh all that stuff really works in the context of this movie um it is really it, it is not the most complex story i mean although people like matt patch's girlfriend who uh uh, fiance here from in the fiance. Fiance, I'm sorry. fiance. you who, downgraded her because of her opinion on Mad Max. Ouch. Was no, yeah. She was tweeting the other day that she was like, even and even for a uh, uh, an allegory about the Middle East, it's simplistic. And it was funny to me because after eight months of talking about this movie, however long it's been, that was the first time I'd ever heard anyone say that. And it was funny that she said that as if it were one it's of the major talking points. And I was <laughs> like, wow, that's. Uh, she does um, not like this movie. She meant, no, she meant it as a big diss, but I. Uh, I saw it as a compliment because it was this whole other way of approaching the movie. Whether or not that reading is valid, uh, I thought that, you know, for a movie that's as cut and dry as this one appears to be, it's a straightforward run and gun. Um, It's interesting that people are still taking things away from it that they see as being face value and others it has not really entered the conversation at all. But uh, it's a really electrifying film. It was far and away the year's best blockbuster. I mean, there's not nothing that is not choking on its dust uh, and uh, will, uh, I think, only gain an appreciation in the years to come, even if I do wish still, despite the overall feel of the movie, I still think that it would have benefited from less speed ramping, um, from a few longer shots that still could have maintained the utter chaos of what was happening if uh, there was a little bit more clarity in the physical movement. Anyway, these are quibbles. Um, a great movie. I was talking to someone recently about like whether or not there were any like Stone Cold look back in 20 years classics from 2015. The idea was that there weren't that many, but I do think uh, Mad Max is one of the few that we will look at in 20 years and be like, holy shit. I look forward to seeing it as like a rep screening in 20 years, like yeah. revisit this movie on the big screen if we still have those in 20 years. <laughs> I think there are several of those movies from this year, but I do agree that uh, even though I place nine movies higher on my list, I do agree that Fury Road will have... Uh, uh, greater lasting power than maybe any of them. I mean, I also liked it for a lot of the reasons <laughs> that David said. <laughs> um, I, I mean, for me, it's just, it's good to see a action movie that is 
uh, treating genre the way that genre can be treated, especially when we're getting a moment where all these blockbuster Marvel movies are like, this one's a heist movie. And I'm like, "Uh, but you're a Marvel movie, like primarily. Mm, Like this is what, this is what good sci-fi can do is sort of what David was talking about is applying it to a lot of different metaphors, even though you have like ridiculous, uh, outblown Mad Max characters. So in that sense, it's a triumph in, like we've always talked about how smaller sci-fi, or at least on this podcast, I've always talked about how I like smaller sci-fi because it can deal with ideas. This is an example of bigger sci-fi, not skimping on the ideas, but exponentially raising how complex it is visually. Yeah, because it doesn't feel compromised in any way. And that's so, that's not, you know, the only reason that it, that it works, uh, but because of what it is able to accomplish by virtue of not being compromised. And I think for a movie of this budget, uh, we never see this. I look at Mad Max and I see uh, all over again the sacrifices that we've made in this big studio entertainment because of how the system is run. Mad Max is why I don't care about so much of what Hollywood makes. Um, But I hope that they learn certain lessons from this movie and allow filmmakers to actually bring the films and tell the stories they want to tell and the way they want to tell them to the screen. Dun, dun, yeah. dun. Mad Max Fury Road is going to pop up a little bit later on. But first, we're going to move on confidently to our number nines with Miss Katie Rich, who brings it back into the ring after someone killed her father. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Creed, another big blockbuster movie that I think is a little bit too long, but still really, really loved. I basically felt in this movie in a way that I didn't in anything else, which really surprised me because I can't stand boxing and have very little connection to the Rocky movies. Um, but this movie worked for me on so many levels. It was so confidently made. Like, Ryan, I, like Fruitvale Station is a movie that I liked. I found it very emotionally impactful, but... I think definitely looked like a kind of a, a first round, like it was Ryan Coogler. I can't remember if it was a directorial debut. I think it was. Yeah. Um, and it was a big Sundance hit. But uh, he comes back with Creed, which is a movie that has this really rock-solid story behind it. I mean, it is rocky, as some people have pointed out. Um, but it's both specific in its details to the story of Adonis Creed. And in changing the race of the main character, it makes a really big difference. It's so specific to... That culture, the, you know, the, like you, you have him surrounded by these kids on these tiny bikes, like driving around the streets of Philadelphia that I know that there's a name for them. Um, and they look kind of ridiculous, but really cool in the hands of these kids. Like all these details that make it a lived in story for this city and for uh, this character played by Michael B. Jordan, who I think is amazing and only getting better. But I didn't see Fantastic Four, so maybe you guys can talk me out of that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's crazy that he had this amazing role and then that movie come out in the same year. Um, and I really fell for Sylvester Stallone in this. Like, the the fact that this movie treats Rocky like a real person and it, tr- like, ta- it shows pictures of people taking pictures with the real Rocky statue that's in Philadelphia. And, like, it's basically as if Sylvester Stallone instead were Rocky Balboa and were about that famous and walking around Philadelphia and sitting in a restaurant. Uh, like, the way that it plays with, like, legacy and, like, what we all know in terms of culture about the Rocky story and then, like... Uh, builds that up like a lot of people have talked already about the way that it plays with the original Rocky score and kind of brings it back for like I mean a moment that like I still think about and like get excited remembering how that moment played out on the screen um yeah it's confident impressive filmmaking and a uh, kind of like an ideal match between star and director and subject matter that again like a, a big hit movie that makes me happy that big hit, hit movies happen this way I should see Creed <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Why have it's I not so seen good. Creed yet? I, I don't understand. I thought you said you were going to go see it like I this weekend know, or something. I failed. I failed. I ran out of time. Star Wars is all consuming. I really have to. Yeah. My work life is interfering with so actually not seeing, seeing good Star movies. Wars is all consuming. Yeah. I think it. I think the chances that I see Creed with my father over the holiday season is very oh, high. I should probably go see it in Philadelphia, right? Like, I should wait to go home and see it with my people. Yeah, hopefully it's still, like, uh, playing well for crowds at that point. It'll have been out for, like, a month, but... It'll knows? be good. Everybody else will be like, let's go see Star Wars again. You'll be like, ah, Creed! <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge crowd pleaser, so definitely, like, seeing it. Like, I saw it in the Warner Brothers screening room, which... It's also where I saw Mad Max, and it's a terrible place to see a movie that's a big crowd pleaser because it's just dead silence in there. <laughs> um, so I would like to see it again with the crowd, too. Speaking of things that you could see right now because they're so good, Patches' number nine pick follows uh, some, some t- awesome journalism. Yes, I mean, it's Spotlight. Not from me, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about Spotlight. We talked about it on the podcast not too long ago, so for in-depth conversation. I would just point you there, but I did watch this movie again after we talked to kind of really just soak it in. I mean, David has been ringing the bell, and like many others, saying that this is this is the best picture material. Um, it's certainly yeah. Well, let's let's not confuse my prediction that this is going to win best picture with uh, my, an opinion that I think with it an is endorsement. The best I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It is <laughs> but, uh, you. You think it's going to go all the way. You're not necessarily I do like this movie very much. Hoping but it does. It did not make my top twenty-five, let alone my top ten. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I it has something to do with journalism. I feel connected to this. Just watching people in this world working. It's not something I do. I admire these people and everything that they've done. Um, but I also admire the way that the actors in this movie uh, elevate the characters, inhabit the characters, bring life to them when there's really no time in the movie to kind of go off and see what they're doing, you know, in their off hours, who these people are. They're bringing, you know, do they live their work? No, um, but they almost do. And I think that's why I love Mark Ruffalo in this movie. Uh, Lee of Schreiber, especially. I think he's my favorite out of the whole ensemble. And what? I, and watching it a second time, I'm really just impressed by this sense of, of failure in the air. You know, this is not like a rah-rah, look at what these people have done, thank God for them movie. This is also like... Towards the end, when they're publishing this story, they're all in a room together talking about, you know, why didn't we do this 20 years ago? Like, we printed some of this stuff in the pages of this newspaper in the, in the metro section, the damning metro section. Complete failures, all of them. And they need to kind of redeem themselves to this. So that's, that's what I found. That's why this movie is more complex than just a straightforward investigation. Uh, and I was, I was quite moved by it. Yeah, the way yeah. that it kind of tells you that you can't do great work without risking failure and having to move past it is uh, that is a really great sub. Not just that risking failure, recognizing your oh, own achieving failure. Yeah, like we're risking and then failing and then you know doing your best to get up the next day and not fail. And then and then keep going afterward. You know, yeah. there's no ending. Yeah, go to back this to movie. work. <laughs> That's a daily struggle for all of us. Going back to work. Keep creating content. That's what I learned from this movie. Content, content, content. Fail and then content again. (laughs) Let's uh, let's let's get off that low note with some Greta Gerwig goodness with David's number nine pick, Mistress America. Yeah, uh, Mistress America, film that first saw all the way back in January at Sundance, and immediately felt very close to home for me. As uh, you know, I, I went to. Columbia. I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, both facts that I 
try not to reveal too often in the course of conversation, but <laughs> this movie about a Barnard girl, you know, Barnard being the sister college of Columbia, and actually where I lived my junior year of college, uh, who spends the second chunk of the film in Greenwich with her uh, stepsister-to-be, Greta Gerwig, hit very close to home for me for obvious reasons. My house then showed up in the movie in what? a blink and you miss it shot. Uh, so to literalize that connection. Uh, oh, but, I was thinking your house was the one that they spent the second half of the movie in. I was going oh, to get really no, excited. I, wish. Uh, I would have been very excited about the movie many months in advance. Had that been the case. Uh, <laughs> but this is one of three Noah Baumbach movies I saw this year. Um, one of two features and then his uh, De Palma documentary, which will be released next year by A24. Uh, and w- which is also excellent. Uh, it really capped off a career year for him. But I-, I thought this movie was electric and so much fun and such a, a spirited portrait of, of and-, and very, I don't know, tapped in, despite the fact that the director is a-, a generation or two older than the main character here, about what it means to sort of be a person and your own person in a time where uh, social media and just well, media in general really is cohering and congealing everyone together into this like one mass hive mind uh, and how people sort of overcompensate for that as you see in Greta Gerwig's character who wants to be so many different things and such an original that she sort of uh, bends over backwards to do it uh, and Lola Kirk's character and Lola Kirk is really um, wonderful here I mean both of them are uh, in, in figuring that out for herself it plays a lot like as many people have said like Francis Ha on Adderall but um, even if it doesn't have quite the same uh, wistful melancholy that Francis Ha does. I do think that it is an overall tighter, more streamlined, uh, and perhaps for me, even a more resonant movie. It's also hilarious. It has that great screwball energy uh, that dips back into the days of, of Lubitsch or Howard Hawks, and uh, the screenplay is able to keep up, keep pace with, with that energy every step of the way. Uh, the 40-minute set piece, however long it is, probably not quite 40 minutes, but uh, however long it is, that set piece in Greenwich at the end of the movie uh, that just finds them all, all these characters running around this one house, uh, I really thought was just one of the best sequences of the year. It's delightful, delightful stuff. Uh, I've watched yeah, that, the movie a couple times since. I love it. That scene at the house is where I re- this movie really won me over, too, because I, lo- I just I love a good, I think not like a slamming doors farce, but like just getting a bunch of people in one room and kind of watching them bounce off each other. And it's so well written and the characters are so hilarious and well drawn that like, there's just it's infinite combinations of the people you'll want to watch. Uh, yeah, that, that I like that movie a lot. Patches, yeah. you have uh, this movie co-listed with your number seven, so maybe you should talk about it here, because <laughs> I'm do. not sure if we're going to allow that. Yeah, I'm cheating. I never cheat, too. Yeah, and that I, is I decided that is to outrageous. cheat, because I really don't give a fuck anymore. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, well, to echo what David said, what I love about this film is, is partially because it's a great companion to Frances Ha. This is the other side of the spiraling out of control millennials. You know, in Frances Ha, Frances is... is just dreaming of wanting to do something but not really being able to do it and here Greta Gerwig's character is is you know spinning her wheels with ambition uh she just wants to do everything so she does nothing it's it's so you know fingers on the pulse of what we witness in this kind of millennial generation and um it's it scared me as well as uh made me laugh oh. and you know the beginning of this movie you know, it eases into these characters and to that farcical nature in the in the center. But I don't think you can get there without kind of doing the legwork of really building these characters and making them interesting and giving them perspective. This is not some navel-gazing New York movie. It is cut from the zeitgeist. It's wonderful. 
All right, we're moving on to my number four pick. Um, uh, I'm going to go with Ex Machina, which was the other sci-fi film that really worked for me this year, although in a much uh, quieter way than uh, Mad Max Fury Road. But uh, really what did it for me uh, in Alex Garland's uh, debut wasn't so much anything but Oscar Isaac, who really props this movie up. And it's a whole bunch of interesting ideas that uh, orbit his character. And although it took me a while to come to terms with that, because I didn't know that much uh, going into my first screening of Ex Machina, um, I've really come to appreciate it as sort of a a character piece that has a lot of interesting sci-fi concepts around it. Uh, But yeah, I really enjoyed it just because it managed to be this tight little... uh, It felt like a short story uh, that had like a cold visual lyricism that uh, was really, I don't know, it's really interested me in Alex Garland as a director and usually debut sci-fi films aren't that uh, clean. And this one Mm. worked really well, uh, like some sort of uh, clockwork machine, like I'm Mm. sure was important to it thematically. Uh, Ex Machina is going to pop up uh, later on unless... Patches, you want to join me here? I do. This This will be on my list. But, um, you know, I remember talking about this movie way back when on this podcast. And, David, I don't think you really care for Ex Machina. I like like a lot about it. Um, I do think there's a tweet by Dance Remix, at Dance Remix, (laughs) that I just – it was really like the film uh, criticism tweet of the year where he was talking about – uh, Ex Machina, and it was essentially saying that the entire idea of the movie was like, what if hot? <laughs> it's like, it's, uh, I can't do it justice. You should go find it. But the, uh, the idea here is it's, you know, a Turing test where it's like, well, what if you want to fuck the Turing test? That's really the whole premise. But like, of what's the movie. wrong with that? I think that's a kind of pressing <laughs> no, question, especially yeah. in the tech industry and in robotics and everything, and, and this kind of I, men versus you know oh, can I say women. Something that uh, I'm only putting together now, uh, I'm really glad that you had this movie on your list, both of you, for this reason, is that I always struggle with those video games where you're supposed to care about decisions that are given to you as a player, like moral decisions. Do you, the branching storyline, it's like, do you kill the child or do you do this? And I'm like, well, they're, they're not real. Uh, so, like, whatever's going to get me the better ending or the better gun or whatever the case might be, I feel very pragmatic in that sense. And I feel like it's the same thing that kept me from fully enjoying Ex Machina because even though Alicia Vikander, everyone in this movie is wonderful, but especially Alicia Vikander uh, and that scene where she puts on a wig and clothes and suddenly transforms into this, you know, attractive young woman and, and you, remarkably changes your uh, perspective of her um, – is very effective. I still have a lot of trouble uh, uh, assigning a humanity to that character because, unlike in a Turing test, he knows that she's a machine, and I know that she's a machine. And so, at no point in the movie was was I uh, empathetic with him risking his life, his physical safety, and but isn't that that's the point of the movie that you do know that she's a machine, but that somehow we have crossed the line. That's the Turing test, right? Like, she no longer can be a machine because of the consciousness. Yes, but the movie failed that for me because I still thought of her as a machine. Failed the Ehrlich test of robotics. Yeah. (laughs) I know I'm being told to think, like, you know, she has transcended what we know of her nature, but at the end of the day, I was still like, she's metal, he made her in a lab, 
Um, Weird. Even though that they can have a nice conversation, I still think, you know, pull the trigger on that shit and run away. I can't decide <laughs> if you need to, like, play, like, a Telltale game or yeah. get a sex robot. Like, mm. there's, there's some sort of... There's a way to empathize with things that aren't real. Can I go with option C and, and go with neither? <laughs> nope. Or yeah, I'm going to go for both. Option C I is think, both. I think uh, I've played Telltale games. Uh, I played the Walking Dead game. And, you know, for the reasons I described, I had no interest in continuing beyond the first chapter. And I think a sex robot would really complicate my my life and would not fit well into the small apartment that I share with my girlfriend. <laughs> mm. So It's I a very think, practical uh, consideration. Pass, yeah. Well, I haven't, thought, we tried. I haven't thought that much about this movie since it came out and we talked about it on the podcast. But I, I mean, I don't like looking back. I feel like it still doesn't grapple that well with the issues of uh, gender that it's bringing up. Like it's very aware of like the way that it's this guy who's created these female sex robots and he's keeping them in a the closet. And it's very dehumanizing. But I don't I, don't, I feel like even when it kind of ends on this like note of like female empowerment, that it the, because it's so muddled up with all the uh artificial intelligence stuff like it doesn't the ideas of it at the end for me feel like they're throwing a lot of things out there but haven't come across anything that really works for that's me interesting in i mean i feel like for me the movie is all about just asking the questions and not having the answers and the point of not having the answers means that robots that we create are going to crush us um <laughs> and that's kind of what i enjoy about it that we're so enamored by what we've created we don't realize we've created something and yes the gender element is there but it's much more about how sloppy we are as individuals and how power hungry are, you know, greed is so important to creating robots and, and sexual well, drive is so important to creating robots, but you know, it blinds us from, but it's very distinctly male greed and male. Sure. Sexual sure. Drive. Yeah. And robots, AI has been sexualized in, in fiction for a hundred years, a long, yeah. for a long time. Uh, but I do think that this is an interesting continuation of that, but my real takeaway talking to you guys now is that I'm going to be a very valuable member of the human uprising uh, after the robots yeah. take over because I will have I don't know. No Should I shoot this robot? David. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was my robot child, David. <laughs> nope. It's a bucket of bolts. Sorry. <laughs> oh, hashtag the real Terminator Genesis. <laughs> Moving on to number eight. Katie, you picked Grandma. Yeah. I, uh, my this grandma? is a movie that is the opposite of the problem I keep talking about. It is 88 minutes long, which is the, my favorite length for a movie to be. Um, and it's just this little gem of a movie. It's the kind of thing that I came around to. Like, I watched it at home and I was really enjoying it. And then I kind of turned it over in my head more and more. And it's the fact that it doesn't waste any time and every scene is valuable. And kind of, it's this crazy kind of road trip across Los Angeles with, uh, Lily Tomlin and, uh, oh no, I'm just going to call her Juno Temple. I'm going to get her name wrong. Leah um, Garner. Yeah. Who, uh, you've seen in like, she's a, a Marcy May, Martha Marcy May Marlene. And she's kind of, she's that indie actress with really curly blonde hair. Um, and, uh, she needs an abortion. And so she's, uh, enlisted her grandmother who is this kind of, uh, lesbian poet who is, uh, recently widowed. Um, and they kind of have, have the, it's good, it really it fits in well with Tangerine. A.O. Scott put them on uh, the same slot on his top ten, which I thought was a really nice touch because it's kind of like a race against the clock L.A. movie. Um, and then you get them kind of trying to pull up the money. And they have these incredible scenes with Sam Elliott, who shows up as kind of a, a flame from the past. And Marcia Gay Harden emerges near the end as the mother, kind of uh, fitting this trilogy of generations. Um but it's like every bit of it really works together. And it's a like Lily Tomlin is this character who you don't see that much, although there's a, a kind of a similar like lesbian poet figure on this season of Transparent, which is really interesting. So I guess that's kind of a moment we're having. Um, 
and yeah, it, it's it's so carefully considered. Paul White's really, he's always directed really humane movies, I think, that kind of take characters and like shuffle them around. And like not all of his movies are necessarily great, but he has like, he has a lot of empathy. And I really like the level of feeling in Grandma, even though Lily Tomlin is this really abrasive, like, you know, someone you don't, you like, you get why her family is distanced from her. It's not like one of those family estrangement stories where everyone's got a heart of gold. Like she's a pain in the ass. Uh, but that's what makes it so interesting and so valuable when you kind of get to some of the redemption that comes in the end of this movie. And like I, between this and uh, I'll see you in my dreams, I cannot underestimate how good of a year that Sam Elliott's been having as this like <laughs> late in life, like Casanova. He, uh, he kills it. He's so good. Um, so yeah, grandma is a very quick watch and very worth your time. Did Does you- he do books on tape? Cause I would I buy the shit so. out of that. He is doing, apparently he's doing this horrible truck ad that uh, I didn't recognize his voice, but where it's like, it has moms scolding their children in voiceover. Then he's like, sorry, mom, I'm going to get a truck instead. And it sucks. God. So uh, good thing he's in this movie too, to make up for yeah, it. I want Sam Elliott's uh, reading the novelization of Big Lebowski. That's my new dream. That's good. <laughs> is that a thing? It should be. I feel like he could do a good My Antonia too, but it'd be weird because it'd be a male voice. <laughs> but good in the same way. I'd, yeah, I'd listen to him read anything. I'm going to say that number eight, pending David and Patches disagreeing with me, is our empathy slot. Patches, you have a very touching documentary here with The Look of Silence, mm. which probably drills into the empathy a little harder than uh, the other entries. Wait, is this on David's list too? David, does The Look of Silence make your top ten? It did. Uh, yes. Oh. Well, I don't want to spoil anything. But yes, I love this film. Uh, <laughs> you Joshua, need to talk about it first. That's the rule. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Well, ch- chime in, David. But uh, this is Joshua Oppenheimer's kind of follow-up to The Act of Killing. Um, and whereas that one had this kind of circus element, this lampooning, this uh, digging into something, digging into a horrific Metatextual issue. Metatextual layer. Yeah, this genocide in Indonesia from, you know, from the eyes of the killers, but also having this lighter touch this kind of bizarre tone um the look of silence is very very straightforward um you know i was thinking about it the other day and it reminds me watching this guy that oppenheimer is is following do we learn his name david i know he's just kind of like a middle-aged indonesian man i wondered if they were the the main character yeah, do we learn his name yeah oh, I, yeah I his name it, is uh you absolutely learn okay. his name it's i'm it's escaping me right now. But, yeah, but he has to he be very careful. One of the anonymous. He has to be very careful because he is, you know, he could, he's interviewing these commun or the uh, Indonesian outlaws or the the government people that were killing uh, his brother, and he just wants to know why and like where he died and, and this whole story. He's trying to piece it all together to understand this horrific act of violence and he, the, these these conversations play out. They're very elegantly structured and directed by Joshua Oppenheimer, and they remind me of a play. I was thinking about um, Marsha Norman's Night Mother. Did you ever see that? This kind of twofer about um, Mm -hmm. this woman who's going to kill herself. She's talking to her mother and just trying to explain these sort of things and kind of convey the emotion, this desire that she has. It's it's not like The Look of Silence at all, but this, this tone, this understanding, but through not just what they're literally saying, but how they're saying it, how they're reacting, these close-ups of these people not being judged by this guy, just this person looking for answers. It's so heartbreaking. Um, I was I was quite moved by this film. And uh, compared to The Act of Killing, which was wild, this one just really 
drove a stake in my heart. It's very sad. Uh, David? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's absolutely invaluable. It's uh, the furthest thing removed from uh, somebody milking the success of their first movie. And it really flips the script from from looking at the perpetrators to looking at the victims, um, which is obviously, you know, goes without saying, is just as valuable a perspective as novels. It was to see things from the perpetrator's point of view and the act of killing. Uh, I think that the you know I, I the immensity of feeling that's generated by this movie and in the wake of everything that's happened in indonesia and the fact that the people responsible for this genocide are still in power and the what it, it's been like for generations to live under their rule uh and the conceit of this character adi is his name going around uh as an optometrist and and fitting them to you know this is a classic literary device you can see it in everything from slaughterhouse five to um, others, <laughs> <laughs> other classic American literature, uh, you know, which uh, is to have actually literally correct the vision of these characters. And, and but it, it works so beautifully. Uh, it's devastating on a degree that is almost impossible for a fiction film to to match. Uh, I, I think that this is when we talk about movies that are going to stand the test of time. I mean, I, I, it's hard to imagine obviously that uh, 20 years from now they're going to be having fun sold out midnight rep screenings of the look of silence in the way that they <laughs> might fury road but i i think as far as significance is concerned uh this is about as important yeah. as it, gets. it brings us so close to something we're so far removed of here in america and just no one knows about this i mean people do i guess but we we need to see this. People we need to do remember because the past. Of, because of the act of killing and look of silence, I think. Yeah, no, it's absolutely. The first I know of it. It's just I think there's a lot of things happening, maybe not on the scale of the Indonesian genocide, but similar acts of violence that people just don't read about. They choose not to know it, and you got to look up. And I think that's the most important lesson from uh, Look of Silence. Oh yeah, continuing on with our empathy palooza. <laughs> David has uh, <laughs> chosen a film that might be about empathy. I haven't seen it. I became familiar with the story that it was based on, but David has chosen Kumiko the Treasure Hunter as his number eight pick. Yeah, uh, this is a film. I don't know if it's on Netflix yet. Um, it should be soon if it isn't already because it came out in theaters in March, maybe, uh, after premiering in Sundance in January of 2014. Uh, and it has been destined for a spot high on this list ever since. Um, Kamiko the Treasure Hunter by the Zellner Brothers is a movie that stars Rinko Kikuchi as... It's it's based very, very loosely on a true story uh, that you may remember reading from a few years back. Uh, Rinko Kikuchi stars as a uh, Japanese office worker uh, who's a bit of an odd bird named uh, Kumiko, who lives with her adorable rabbit Bunzo, if you've seen the Team Bunzo hashtag. Uh, did you the start the Team Bunzo hashtag? I wish I could say that I did. It was actually the first tweet on Twitter that I could find on Team Bunzo comes from Wall Street Journal film critic Steve Dollar. Uh, and I believe I was second in line, but I, I'm happy to defer to him. Uh, happy just to play a role in spreading the, the goodness. <laughs> the gospel the good of Bunzo. Of Bunzo, exactly. Um, but, and, and this is a film about a girl who discovers a VHS tape of Fargo in a cave uh, that is the Coen Brothers movie and not the first season of uh, mm-hmm. the television show that's a on. cave that she's uh, been led to by some kind of treasure map like this yes. is a, this is all part and, of a plan yes and and it's uh, until the very end of this movie it is uh, and beyond it's 
left to your imagination how much of this is entirely in her head versus what is happening. But she finds a copy of Fargo. She becomes convinced that the treasure buried by Steve Buscemi's character in that movie is real and that it is her destiny to find it. And so she, uh, after 45 minutes or so in the movie, um, which is very methodically paced and allows you to sort of sink into her unique psychoses, uh, she uproots her life, quits her job, and heads to Minnesota and then North Dakota to uh, to find this money that she believes is, is her birthright and sink into her own madness and find all of the interesting Cohen-esque American characters who she crosses on her journey, many of whom try to help her as best they can, even though she is so uh, stubborn and uh, there's a language barrier and there it's a, it's very much a Don Quixote story in its own way. She's tilting at windmills. And I think what I love so much about it is not only how affecting it is to watch and funny at times and, and endearing and tragic it is to watch her journey, but also the it's easy to extrapolate from it. And this is sort of a story about how we're all sort of tilting at windmills, choosing what's important to us, what's meaningful, assigning meaning to it um, and sort of, having our own baselines of, of what's accomplishment and what isn't. Uh, I don't think this movie could end any other way than how it does. Uh, I love how it does. I, I really love everything about it. I've seen it more times than I can count. Uh, Rinko Kikuchi is just next level great in it, as is her rabbit. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like the and, rabbit. Uh, I'll give that movie this. <laughs> this one left me a little cold. Yeah, Patches, we and not just because it this. takes place in Fargo. It. I watched it recently. I was very stressed out by this movie. Like I had a oh, really yeah. hard time. Like, I like I love the Cohen-esque characters you mentioned, David. But like I was so concerned about her and baffled by her decisions, and I had a really hard time like kind of getting past that and to enjoy the stuff that you're getting out well, of it. She's insane. I know but... it's, it's very stressful. <laughs> yeah, I mean this is uh, if if this is not the kind of movie you watch the character and think like, oh, I'm going to relate to all of the decisions <laughs> yeah. that she makes here. Would <laughs> you uh, like to be crazy? But I think that you probably you probably can if again if you extrapolate them. Uh, to a degree. I mean, like, yes, her decisions are rooted in in a very skewed view of the world, but I think they're all things that we that drive us and obsess us and that we chase after even when people might discourage us from yeah. doing so, which is not to say that it's such a, that kind of story where it's like, you know, they told me no and I did it anyway and it worked out, you know? I, um, it's it's a little bit more confused than that, but it's, uh, yeah, I found it very affecting. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't, strike me. I mean, I really liked the aura of this movie. I love the score by The Octopus Project. Wonderful soundtrack, and that really sets the tone, the mood, and the the pairs so well with the cinematography. Um, But, I don't know. I just, I couldn't really find anything to latch on to. It wasn't... It wasn't discovering anything on this journey for me. Not that every movie has to or something, but I, I just didn't find anything to latch on to with, uh, with Kumiko. But the bunny is really cute. And I look forward to seeing how Noah Hawley steals from this for Fargo someday. <laughs> Another theme of this uh, number eight is traveling. We have a lot of uh, we have road movies, basically. Ooh, yeah. Trend. There you go. I guess keeping up the motorized transport theme, we've come to our first overlap. Katie has picked Mad Max Fury Road for her number yeah. seven. I, I don't know that I have a ton extra to add, especially because this movie has been talked about so much. But I, I guess, like David said, the fact that this movie exists at all feels like a miracle. And uh, I've loved revisiting it and thinking about it and kind of arguing in favor of its simplicity 
Uh, one of the best classes I took in college was on Westerns. And so I love like identifying Western tropes and other genres. And like you're saying, like this is the power of what genre movies can do, like the way that it's so thoughtful and weird, but like playing off of like imagery from the searchers. It's uh, let me ask you yeah, one like question. Said, classic. You mm-hmm. know, we were talking about my fiance not liking this movie um, and she does not jive with the whole this is such a good movie for women. There's really strong female characters in it. Can you go to bat for this movie in terms of just like women, her, women in cinema? What is her What is her argument that they're that it's not a good woman? I, she just doesn't women. think they do anything. That it's a lot of like hot ladies standing around in skimpy clothes, and then they get to like shoot some guys at some point. That that's not. It's definitely hot ladies standing around in skimpy clothes, and like I think you know, there's it, the movie's basically having fun with that while also making these characters interesting. Like all of these women assert themselves in different ways. Like the fact that it's got older women in it who are kind of who are the Vuvalini. Um, it's really interesting that it lets them die in the, you know, it's not precious about them and, like, lets them die in combat in mm. a way that a lot, of, a lot of movies don't. And, like, I think I really find it hard to argue with Furiosa as a character. She's fascinating and complex. I think she and Tom Hardy make such a good pair. Like, I think his contributions to this movie are a little undervalued, even though he is rightly not the most important part of the movie. Uh, the way that he and Charlie Theron play off of each other I find really satisfying. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Furiosa alone makes this She's a really... A badass interesting good and she's not just a badass she's like a person you know she's not like a, she's a badass the, person the, the movie needs any more validation uh about the strength of its female characters and the value that they bring to a movie especially of this scale uh than the men who came out of the woodwork when this movie came out and were pissed that Mad Max wasn't the, <laughs> the hero. Wasn't the main star hero. necessarily <laughs> of the Mad yeah. Max movie. Anything that uh, makes like, men's rights advocates angry yes. is going to sit well with me. Like they, they, that response to it, which I still see uh, to this really? day, was was everything. Where that do I you see it? That, Where like, are you this, searching? Are people uh, tweeting at you? My, I, so I put my uh, top twenty-five countdown video on YouTube just so it would be there without really advertising it. I, I like prefer Vimeo, so it really lives there. Uh, and naturally, all the comments on Vimeo are uh, a little bit more thoughtful, and the comments on YouTube are just like, die, you filthy scum. You know, and I am looking this up now. I really want to talk talking like the gangster in Home Alone. Yes. One of the comment threads uh, started yesterday was somebody grousing about how uh, insulted he was that the women sort of took over this precious Mad Max movie. And I was like, your response is why this movie <laughs> is valuable and works. Uh, it's not because we haven't seen, you know, like it's doing something particularly groundbreaking and having strong female characters uh, that go toe to toe with men, but that uh, a block, you know, a film of this scale is putting them so unabashedly at the fore and giving them so much agency and so much power um, and doing it in a franchise that is named after its male lead and really pushing him to the sideline without blinking about it uh, and without at any point pretending that, um, you know, like his contribution was he was an ally. Yes. But that like uh, that they needed him beyond that. I mean, I think that it was it was really important in that sense uh, and is all the validation that you need for the effect of these women in this movie. These comments are really satisfying. Where's I Origins, David? Yeah, Was that know. this it's year? 2014. Patches, you're going to do the return of Noah Baumbach, but because we've already spoiled that you split it with Mr. Samerica, what was your other choice? Yes, for my other seven? choice was the other Baumbach film or narrative film, While We're Young. Um, ah. And I think, well, you know, at the beginning of this podcast, I joked that I'm 29, not 30 yet, not old. You guys are old. I'm young. While we're young, 
Um, but I am so caught between these two films that Noah Baumbach has made. Obviously, Greta Gerwig might be the the, the maestro of Mistress America, um, but I'm so glad that he can make that movie. He can facilitate Mistress America, understand her and her perspective so well that he can make someone else's movie. I think a lot of directors we see are either up their own ass as writer-directors or, uh, you know, kind of Ridley Scott designing other people's films without getting emotional about them. And Noah Baumbach can clearly do that in Mistress America. And then he can make his own film he can make while we're young, which is being surrounded by young people, which is a sense that I'm feeling more and more like being removed and watching people go party and be like, what is my life? I thought you weren't 30 yet. I feel 30 by working at Thrillist where like every, the the mean age is uh, 20 or something. (laughs) You know, it's, it's terrifying to be around young people or think that there are young people in the world and I'm not one of them anymore. And I think that while we're young uh, really nails getting older and, and what that means uh, and I'm not middle-aged like Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts in this but I go you know I feel like I'm entering these questions and these problems and these wonderful miracles that we have about getting older and accepting that uh, it's 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 great to get older uh, and I think Noah Baumbach just hits every right note in this movie I was really struck by it I think it's lovely and it's very funny not as funny as Mistress America uh, but very funny yeah, Wally Young didn't strike me nearly as much as Mr. America did. Like, I, I do think yeah. it's really funny, um, but it felt some of it. It felt easy in a way, like the way that it kind of set up this generation gap. Like it, it felt like it didn't kind of take it as far as it could have to make these characters more interesting for me. Like, I enjoyed what, it, the shift that it takes uh, rather clumsily um, into being this. You know, because so much of the movie is like. Couples in their forties are like this, or couples in their twenties. Well, the beginning, like the this. beginning of the movie plays with that sitcom concept and does it really well. Like yeah. I watch the sitcom version of this movie like every week. That's great, but yeah, but the uh, I, I, it shifts somewhere a little bit more cutting uh, when it sort of talks about the. It becomes very much about the authenticity of who we are and the image that we project. And I think a lot of the territory that it covers at its best moments are is covered better by Mistress America. Um, but it's a fun, it's a fun movie. Naomi Watts can't go wrong with her. No, True. she's hilarious. And she she got a great dancing scene. And I do think I find these paired because I'm just astounded that Noah Baumbach can make these movies. And and compared to what he was doing, you know, when he first did Squid the Whale or Margot with the Wedding, uh, Margot with the Wedding, I really enjoy. But Squid the Whale kind of left me a little, eh. But now this this new period that he's in where he's kind of turning these movies out and or turning these movies out and, and, and digging into his own life. I don't know. I love what he's exposing. It seems very true uh, without sacrificing the fun of the movie, too. That's fair enough, but never split a top 10 spot again. <laughs> That's against the rules. <laughs> Slapping you should have seen the tone Dave took with me when he thought I'd submitted an unranked list. It was uh, it was harsh. You're like, I don't remember like all of them really. Here's here's the thing. I'm like, please rank them. That is how this podcast is structured. <laughs> I did. I just didn't make it clear. I wanted to say clear. one I'm thing sorry. about Mistress America. And this yes. is completely unrelated, actually. Do people watch Scream Queens? If you like Mistress no, America, no. I would highly recommend Scream Queens. It's so funny. What a great farce. Anyway. Oh, man, oh, you're man. gonna do that after I've like talked up the first three seasons of American Horror Story for anyway. We'll... I will never watch that show, but Scream Queens is a riot. That is that's Whoa. an oxymoronic statement you're making. All right, David. When we return to television on this podcast, <laughs> yeah. yes. so your number seven pick is Eden. Rescue us yeah. from Scream Queens talk. I think Patches is is with me on this one. 
I don't know. Maybe I'm making Eden? that up. Eden? I haven't seen uh, it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so I am making that up. Richard Lawson's uh, with you But I'd on love it, to. If that's who you're sure. Uh, Eden is wonderful. Mia Hansen Love is, is one of the best filmmakers on the planet, full stop. She, uh, um, for, you know, I hesitate to even mention that she's Olivia Assayas' partner, and just be- because I don't want that to be her defining issue. And now, four films into her career, it, it couldn't be because she is such a strong filmmaker in her own right. I just am always blown away by uh, how much talent is in that relationship and hoping that they have children because they, their child will be the second coming. Filmmaker uh, power couples are always satisfying. Yeah, they're so always fun okay. to discuss. But Mia Hansen Love is, uh, is just incredible. She made Goodbye First Love. Um, she made The Father of My Children. She made another film before that, which is also strong. Uh, Eden is a story that's based on her brother and her brother's experiences in the 90s, working as a DJ in Paris in the uh, trash music scene or the garbage the, the trash music? Trash? I don't know. Called? I don't know. Uh, anyway, it's like a kind of electro. It's a scene in which Daft Punk rose to prominence, and Daft Punk, or actors playing Daft Punk, uh, have a humorous recurring role in this movie, uh, which spans from the early 90s to recent, the recent times. Uh, and what's interesting about it is it's how much of it is uh, this sort of melancholy look at stasis, contrasting the uh, so that sort of bittersweet quality against the euphoria of the music and that defines this scene because the character the main character uh has these dreams of being a great dj um and he has just enough success and just enough encouragement to become stuck in them uh for years and years his relationships wilt and wither and uh other people move on to success or you know start new lives because they realize that this is not the be all end all for them it's something to which i think we can all you know, regardless of what it is that we do, we all in the royal sense, and so probably we all on the podcast as well can relate to all too well. Uh, and it's remarkable to watch this main character over 20 years, barely age. I think he grows a slight mustache at one point. Um, but I think that that was a deliberate and canny decision to, uh, as the people around him have children and get married and go on to all these different lives. Uh, he is really sort of stuck there holding on to this dream that is uh, never really going to blossom for him. Um, and he slowly learns how to break away from that mold of a, of a life that he's made for himself. And uh, it's, it's sad and sexy and does a great soundtrack. And uh, it's, it's really, really phenomenal filmmaking. Um, Mia Hansen Love is so smart about how she tells her stories. They really get under your skin and Eden might, well, I, I think goodbye. First love uh, will probably always be my very favorite but this is right up there um and also could be on netflix i don't really know but uh you should definitely seek it out it's fantastic and it is not the jamie chung film from um 2006 from last year about <laughs> sex slavery so oh wow good to know wait isn't so, there also please. a selma hayek uh action movie called eden that came out this year am i making that, that was everly oh everly sorry everly my mistake yeah. <laughs> see it all right <laughs> Um, we're going to wrap up our number sevens with my number three pick. Uh, once again, if you see these things written out like they will be at fightingintheworm.com in these show notes, it makes a lot more sense. But my number three pick is Mad Max Fury Road for all the reasons listed previously. Plus, I like big action movies, so maybe a little bit of that sprinkled on top. With real um, explosions. Yeah, real explosions in deserts and lovely days and huffing paint. All things I like. What was your favorite weird quirk of Mad Max? Was there like something that you're clinging to 
the, the geekery of it all per se what was my favorite weird quirk um i mean i like the idea of it just being one long chase and i kind of feel like that's an ideal way to show like a post-apocalypse or a fantasy world as a matter of fact i'm gonna mold a dungeons and dragons campaign after a long chase because fury road <laughs> made me is realize it, that you could double back is it set in the mad just, max universe your campaign no it's set, oh, it, no, it's set on the sword coast where D should be set i'm not i'm not no amateur anyway number six Katie, uh, you have a unique um, pick that doesn't pick up on anybody else's list, so oh. tell us about Diary of a Teenage Fox Girl. Foxcatcher again. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yes, Foxcatcher again. Never the, forgive Katie I will make for Fox you catcher. all love Foxcatcher. Uh, no, Diary of a Teenage Girl is, uh, yes, another movie that uh, somehow manages to be too long, even though it's an indie film from a first-time filmmaker, which is, uh, you know... Were you really uh, busy this year? Were you rushed? Did you have no, somewhere to I be guess, all like, the time? What David, happened? you can't diss this. Three New York Times film critics put this on their list, so Katie has I, backup no, here. I, just, oh, no, you're talking about I'm me talking saying, about movies being too long, oh, right? Oh, yeah, every movie yeah. Katie's No, like, I think it's, it's just something that I look back at. Like, when I was trying to, like, figure out what I was going to put on my list, I kept hitting on things being like, yeah, I remember being in this movie and feeling like it like, needed to get going somewhere, but I still really like it. Um, I don't know why that's become, like, the organizing principle. Uh, but anyway, Diary of a Teenage Girl is uh, directed by Marielle Heller, making her directorial debut. It is adapted from a graphic novel uh, written by a person whose name I'm going to look up right now because I don't know it. Um, I think what it's become really famous for is... uh the debut of, or not debut, but kind of the breakout of Belle Pally, who is the, uh, who plays the main character, who is the titular teenage girl growing up in San Francisco. Uh, her mother's played by Kristen Wiig, who I think is such a fascinating character, who is kind of like, so it's in the, it's set in, uh, I think 1974 or so. Uh, and her mother is divorced and she's kind of, or 1976. Um, and her mother's divorced and she's dating, um, but you can tell she's like a woman who was born in the 40s. And was kind of raised with these 50s and 60s ideals and is really adjusting to the 70s and kind of figuring out how to get used to that. And at the same time, her daughter has kind of grown up in the 70s. She's extremely sexually precocious. She starts sleeping with her mother's boyfriend, which is something that kind of she knows is a bad idea but keeps doing anyway. Um, the boyfriend is played by Alexander Skarsgård, who I think is really good. Um, I also loved him in Melancholia. I've never watched True Blood, so I keep encountering him in random movies. And uh, okay. maybe I should like him more. I could just um, fill you in on some I mean, True not, Blood I'm scenes. I'm not going to watch True Blood, so don't worry about that. Um, <laughs> Um, but the, I mean, it's so it, it's like so inside her head because it's based on this graphic novel. It's got a lot of illustrations. It's got uh, her talking directly to the camera, so you really kind of get her feelings, even in the middle of making this really inexplicable decision. That like that's not something I can really relate to at all. But a lot of what else happens in the movie, I really can, and I think basically anybody could. Um, and it's just it's thoughtful and it's uh, bold, especially coming from a first time director. It's a uh, really steeped in its period details and I think all of the characters I think Kristen Wiig is probably my favorite character in the movie because of what I said about how she's kind of straddling these generations but it's uh it's really thought through all of these people and kind of makes this kind of wild like oh sleeping with her mom's boyfriend like makes that really grabby premise something that you can see happening to all of these real people I liked it a lot yeah I I like it I don't I don't love this movie. I think it's really important. It's exploring some space that we've we've been to many, many times, but I think having a female voice behind it is really important. And I wish that I think the movie was rated R. I really don't know if fifteen year old girls will get to see this movie, uh or if or if they'll yeah, discover it in streaming. But give I would them give them the graphic novel like they should. Yeah. Well I remember yeah. I remember Dave and I saw this movie, I think together. I think we held hands during this movie and we walked out yeah. and I just thought like 
well, there's a lot of nudity and there's a lot of sex, and you keep forgetting she's 15 because there's so much goddamn sex in this movie. And mm-hmm. uh, but it's so important. Like no one, the people who need to see this movie are not going to see it, and that's really disappointing because mm. while I don't think it's spectacular, yeah. I do think it could really connect with the right audience, and it's very, it's a very special movie. I wouldn't underestimate the ability of teenagers to see things with a lot of teenage sex in it. Fair. That's true. Uh, Speaking of uh, weird sex patches, you're bringing Ex Machina back into the countdown at number six. They don't have weird sex in this movie, do they? Oh, well, I guess Oscar Isaac has had relations with some of his other robots. Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, the dancing. It's a metaphor. Um, yeah, dancing is all you need. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll add too much to this, but I did want to kind of hone in on the performances here. As I said, I'm, you know, actually, as example in a mini segment from a few weeks ago where I was talking about Gmail and Google, I'm just like in constant terror of the men who run Silicon Valley and their control on our entire lives and how sadistic they seem, even in like, I'm smiling and telling you how utopian the future is going to be because i'm in control that spooks me um and i think oscar isaac his character is is quintessential um he he, you know this bro total bro uh who's a genius and the power that he wields it's scary and he's so nice at times it's 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 a very chilling performance and i think domino gleason is does a very good job of being our proxy being someone who's excited by this prospect and has a lot of emotion to give to something that other people would just shoot in the head like David. Um, and Alicia <laughs> Kander, I guess she got nominated for a Golden Globe for playing she did. Ava. I mean, I think her performance is very uh, honest and, and very straightforward and, you know, doesn't kind of fall into, I'm playing a robot, beep boop, um, which she should have done. But I don't really get maybe the, the total praise for, for that, uh, that performance. But she definitely sticks it out and and plays against these these men and yeah i love this trifecta of this movie the 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 personalities there create so much friction it's very rewarding Mm, yes creeping sense of dread from oscar isaac all the time which i really enjoyed uh david number six has the duke of burgundy which basically from here on out david's choices are a little a little off the path from everybody else so hit it up david David and i david and i have overlap coming up but some of it yeah if I'm the only one who has Carol on this list, which is a very real possibility, you guys should all be ashamed of yourselves. The uh, Duke of Burgundy is just the fucking greatest. There's, I love this movie more and more. Uh, you know, I haven't, I, I have seen it since, but I you know, first saw it in Toronto in the fall of 2014, um, and it has only grown in my estimation since then. Peter Strickland's follow-up to Barbarian Sound Studio. It's a story that takes place in a world without men, uh, a world in which it's not ever explicitly commented on, but uh, they are simply absent. It's uh, the story of a fraught relationship between two women. Uh, it, I, th- I really hesitate to say too much about this movie. I know we reviewed it on the podcast once upon a time. Uh, it's really best experience for yourself, but it is about... Uh, it's so... In its... In its uh, you know, like Barbarian Sound Studio, it's a bit of an homage to uh, a certain brand of older European cinema, less, you know, giallo stuff like Barbarian was and more to, I don't know, the, the softcore, uh, but still very artistic uh, European films. It of seems pulpy. Maybe that's... Is that the right... In a way, but it's uh, it's such a... For all of its trappings, and it is very much wrapped within the 
unvarnished details of a BDSM romance. Uh, it is such a beautiful and tender love story. It, it is so um, profoundly on point about the nature of being in a relationship, the performative aspects of it. It's, you know, anyone who's ever talked to me or listened to me talk about certified copy, uh, I'll say a lot of the same things about the Duke of Burgundy, which recasts similar ideas in a very different way. Uh, the performances here by uh, Chara Bastriani and Sidza, Babza, uh, Sidza Babbitt Knudsen are uh, fucking amazing and deserve to be in every awards consideration that they will not be. Um, it's a staggeringly beautiful movie. I'm going to say the same thing that I've said for the last like, four movies on this list that I think it's on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm like a slightly more confident that it's on Netflix than I was about the others. Um Man, I, I love can this find movie. This, out. this this movie will pop up on best of the decade lists and whatnot. Um, I think this really is going to find its own foothold because there's nothing quite like it. It's so it's so good. It's so uh, knows what it wants to be and nails that. Um, and I didn't care for it. <laughs> it's got a great musical interlude. It's got a phenomenal score. It has a perfume by credit in the opening credits. <laughs> uh, it gives every butterfly, the many that feature in the movie, their own uh, scientific classification. The end credits. It's this is really um, yeah, not since Mothlight. Uh, no, <laughs> it, uh, it is on Netflix. Wonderful. You can see it right now. Duke of Burgundy. It does have a, a smell to it. I think that's what I like. About Duke a, of a lovely smell to it, not like a stink. No, to it's it. not a stench. Like a very, a very. Uh, it's musky, classy. It's musky, yes. but in an intriguing way. You want to go down that hallway, but uh, yes. I still think it's very giallo. I think I don't know if it really distances itself compared I mean, to. I won't uh, go to the mat to say that it isn't. Uh, I think it's very much from the same man who made yes, Barbarian Sound yes, Studio. Yes, and yeah, left me a little cold. <laughs> Well, wow. and with that, we've reached our halfway point, everybody. Wow. We're Hooray. going to uh, push push further into the best of 2015 with Katie returning to Mistress America. Yeah, I wow. saw this on a screener like a couple weeks ago, way, way after everyone else had, and was uh, really surprised by how much it captivated me, especially because I liked Frances Ha, but I, I think I missed some of the magic of... Uh, that it had on a lot of people. Um, like I was saying before, I really think that kind of farce element at the house is what sold me on it. I mean, it's really insightful about what it's saying about its characters throughout, but then it kind of hits that farce level and you just see the writing really take off on this new level and realize just how skilled uh, Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach are while working with each other. And David was talking earlier about how it's you know about forming your identity and figuring out who you are and just you know this young writer character played by Lola Kirk who's like writing about people in her life and kind of putting in all these identities like oh there's like a painful identification there that uh kind of hurts to look back at but also like seeing it captured on film is really satisfying and uh you know hard to watch but also (laughs) lovely to see it um yeah I I really love it. what do you think of Lola Kirk in this movie I mean, I don't know if I would be like cast her in everything because I'm not sure what her affect would. Because she's she's very kind of lost, like slightly down key college student. Um, but she's great in this context. I'd be I'd be interested to see what she does next uh, and to see if she kind of has a range. Yeah, I'm glad she can but, be in know, that position and still have personality. She still seems yeah, quite. Yeah, I mean, I guess you know, saying you don't know if an actress has range when you've seen her in one movie is not fair because most people only sh- don't show that much range. Time to in watch one role. Mozart in the Jungle. Oh, yeah, is she on that? She plays a very similar character in Mozart in the Jungle. She's the main character in the show, and she, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that 
she certainly knows how to play the role that Katie just described. Uh, I think time will tell. She's going to be in a movie that um, I expected to be at Sundance, but will pop up elsewhere in 2016 called AWOL, uh, where she'll be playing a different kind of character. Uh, 2016 may be where we see just, you know, what what she's capable of. Although I'll also add, I think for a long time, I didn't think of Kristen Stewart that highly because I didn't feel like she had that much range because she was kind of doing a similar vibe in a lot of her movies, but kind of realizing what she's able to do within that vibe that she can't get away from, like, like especially after Clouds of Sills Maria. Um, it's not really a fair thing to say if like someone always is like, you know, tousling their hair and looking off in the distance that they can't have a lot of range. I'm guessing at this point that nobody had Clouds of Sills Maria on their top 10. But I really it, wanted to. And it was my number 11. Yeah. So. Go see Clouds of Sils Marie. It's it's really great. That's the Olivier Assayas contribution of the Olivier Assayas Mia Henson love uh, to some this year. Aw. well, Patches and David, you guys picked the same number five film. Oh, so Whoa. this is the only time this happens. You guys get to share accolades for a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting existence. Right, we'll switch off. We'll switch off words. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we were really oh, wait, following, no, I cut off Dave from saying the title of the movie. Though, <laughs> if we were the following, pigeon sat on a branch. We did now. Now, okay, here we go, Patches. I'm, I'm going to say the name of the movie. A pigeon sat on a branch reflecting existence. Reflecting on existence. Reflecting on existence. You almost got it. Oh, sorry. You almost got it. So <laughs> the close. The third time was not the charm. Um, well, I think David and I came at this movie from very different places. David, you knew Roy Anderson's work, and I can admit that I did not. He was kind of a, a, a you know, a void on my on my viewing, and I didn't know his films, and I've w- gone backwards now. I think A Pigeon Sat on the Branch, Reflecting on Existence is the funniest movie I saw all year, and I saw it in 2014, and I'm still laughing at it. It's on Netflix now, so you can watch it, and it definitely sent me down the Anderson uh, rabbit hole. I loved the hell out of this little set of vignettes about the human condition and this kind of <laughs> fantastical dioramic look at awkward behavior sad struggles um you know there's a through line to this movie about two toy salesmen or practical joke salesmen um and they wear this mask called uncle one tooth and it's probably the funniest thing i've ever seen in my lifetime i love it uh well it's funny because as patrick said we did come in from very different places i uh, the most frequent qu- criticism i've seen of this movie is that uh, as the third in a trilogy the trilogy on about being a human being that some people who were familiar with Anderson's work thought that it was a case of diminishing returns, that it was more of the same and, and not up to snuff with the vignettes scene in You the Living and Songs from the Second Floor. Uh, I was intimately familiar with those movies when I saw this one. And uh, while I can see why people might think that just because uh, on the most superficial level, it is more of the same. Um, I certainly didn't find it to be a case of diminishing returns. I think that this one is focused on on death as it is, and focus on uh, man's inhumanity to man, particularly with one left field uh, bit of devastation towards the end. Um, and just the the scale of the vignettes in this one, particularly one involving an ancient king of Sweden uh, and his horse, uh, it's, it's, Anderson hasn't lost a yeah. beat since he started doing these. Um, and I do think that his next movie will probably deviate from this formula a little bit, but I, I think that uh, this fills in all of the holes that were left from the previous two films and it's just as valuable as either of them were. And uh, uh, I, I think the world is a better place for having 
a third of these movies in it. Well, that's the thing. Like, um, the, the character might be uh, lesser here in A Pigeon Set on a Branch. I think his previous movies, they're, they're, you can connect to them, and they're more relatable because the characters look more familiar, and maybe the scenarios do too. But, you know, having gone back to his other films, you feel like a momentum building. The, as you said, these, some of these vignettes are so, it's spectacle. It's awe-inspiring, like what he's able to do and how picturesque it becomes and how the dream logic can be terrifying at times and and then so small and intimate and feel so large i mean i, th- I guess that's that dichotomy is kind of what fuels a pigeon sound branch and yeah tremendous um this movie brought up my inner jeff wells i was like clawing at my collar wanting to get away from it and like coming up with excuses to pause it on netflix and go do something else and i i had to give up that's the problem I with couldn't. netflix the tone yeah. like I, the, the tone the fact that even in like sequences like the king of sweden thing that the tone was still exactly the same. It was still about this like quiet despair and like people like kind of failing, but having no outlet and like, Oh, I just, Oh, it made me, it made me crazy. I couldn't do it. What about the limping Lada scene where uh, that scene, old... that scene was incredible. And I kind of watched that happen in awe. And then it kind of returned to this tone. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't be in that world anymore. I think that like, there are so many moments in this movie and the limping Lada scene is one of them that, say more about you know unpleasant or otherwise uh what it is to be alive than most films did for the entire year i mean there's this great sequence this, that we were referring to where an old man is drinking in his seat at a bar the same seat in which he's been drinking for his entire life uh and it cuts back to you know the year of roy anderson's birth whatever i can't remember exactly what i remember that detail i can't remember what year it was exactly sometime but, world war ii uh, it seemed like yeah sometime world war ii and he's there as a young man and uh sitting in the same seat and the woman for whom the bar is named uh begins singing to the soldiers who she gives drinks to in uh in exchange for a kiss and then it cuts back to it's so good uh anyway yeah i uh I may try to revisit it at some point. I just, I had to realize, no, like, won't. to cut my losses. <laughs> Maybe not. I, don't, I mean, like, I want, I, I'm intrigued to see how it goes, because you're talking about things that come later in the movie. Like, I know that it's deviating from its tone at certain points, but I, I was so suffocated by the tone that but I But the tone is there. hilarious. That's what I don't understand. Like, the romp I, of it I, all. I, it was, I thought it was funny, and then it became so despairing that I couldn't, and, and it didn't vary at all in its tone of despair or humor that I couldn't. I didn't want to be in it anymore. There are there are scenes where like the toy salesmen are sitting in there. Where do they live? It's not an apartment. It's like a hostel type situation, and they're just yeah, sitting in the room. Like feel it feels like watching ice cream melt. It's so depressing, but also goofy because of the the props and the setting. And oh, it's extravagant. Katie Rich doesn't have a lot of time to suffer foolish narratives <laughs> this year. I got other things to do. <laughs> 88 minutes. If it's over 88 <laughs> minutes, it's already too long. Uh, for my number two pick, I'm going to make David happy because this is where Carol falls on my list. What? Uh, Good That's for a you. shocker. I've, I spent a lot. I spent a lot of time uh, bathing in the look and feel of this movie, and even though I didn't engage with it, like we talked about on a review episode, to the point where I was uh, inhabiting one of the characters in their love story, uh, that doesn't mean I can't appreciate it for what it is, which is a story told beautifully and well and acted just amazingly. And there's a point where a door is closed on Kyle Chandler, and you just see his reaction on like one of his eyes. And I was just like, damn, mm. damn movie. 
I'm looking in the right place and you made sure I was looking there and then Chandler delivered and like that's echoed across all performances. I like cheered at that part of the movie. He goes, he goes, but I, he's talking to Carol's friend and he says, I love her. And she goes, I can't help you with that. And she, oh, it's so good. Yeah, so good. <laughs> uh, anyway, Carol's really good. Uh, yeah, we, we'll probably be talking about that more as we approach the end of David's list. So let's uh, chug along to number four. Katie, you would be the first one to bring up Phoenix on this podcast. Yeah. But not Another movie I caught super duper late. Uh, I, you guys talked about it on this podcast like in April or something. Like I can't remember where it showed up for everybody else, but uh, I caught up to it very late. Um, but it's this totally fascinating uh, story about kind of post-World War II Berlin. And what I think is like a deliberately fantastical story, like uh, this woman who gets facial reconstruction, you know, she's been horribly burned or maimed or something in a concentration camp and gets the surgery so that she can then emerge kind of looking like her old self, um, which I, I'm pretty sure there was no such kind of actual plastic surgery in post-war Berlin or post-war Germany, but anyway. Um, and then it's, completely fan- it's completely fantastical, but I think that the idea and the reason why it works is because it says, like, if you can believe, and this would have been impossible to believe uh, before it happened, and I think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people still have trouble believing that it happened, uh, that there could be such an extreme genocide on yeah. the, the Jewish people that they have these camps that were devised just to exterminate them. Uh, if, if that can fall into the scope of your imagination, then surely you can buy the idea that this woman could have facial reconstructive surgery and be unrecognizable to yeah. her husband. Yeah, no, the, there's like a level of kind of come with us and believe this. And the level of destruction in Berlin is also kind of beyond belief. So all of it, like nothing is operating by the old rules, which is what makes this movie so interesting. And so she seeks out her husband and kind of finds him and then uh he doesn't know that it's her but kind of enlists her in this scheme to uh collect the death benefits for what he believes is his dead wife and you kind of watch their relationship play out from there and it's a it's kind of a two-hander there's a uh, there's a supporting uh a female role kind of the woman who uh helps our heroine out and then uh, is kind of aghast when she watches the choice that she's making to go back to this husband who he, he I was calling him the German Kyle Chandler. He has this very Kyle Chandler look about him and uh, kind of similar to Kyle Chandler and Carol. Like, you don't really think he's a bad guy, but you don't necessarily know if he's a good guy. It's not quite as, uh, you know, emotion, like invested in his interior emotion as Carol is for Kyle Chandler. But yeah, I, I love the two-hand play between the two of them. I liked the surrealness of post-war Berlin. And then uh, as uh, I think you guys probably discussed earlier in the year, and as you can see in David's countdown, its final scene is crazy good. It ends on such a high note and, the, you know, the confidence that it takes to get there. and Definitely the way that makes you forget been that played. it's kind of like... A boring movie. <laughs> oh, see, I, like, I was so, like, you know, watching... It's like, kind of like a Kamiko the Treasure Hunter in that you're watching this main character and you're being like, wait, why are you not saying this thing? Why are you saying this thing? Why are you doing it this way? And you're so kind of understanding of but also baffled by her actions that I felt just so hooked along by figuring out what she was going to do and what he was going to do and if her friend was going to intervene. I, I, I didn't feel boring to me at all. Mm-hmm. We'll be marching back to Phoenix pretty <laughs> yeah. soon. So let's move on to Patches, who is the only person to put this Quentin Tarantino movie on his countdown. That's right. Boo. I'm putting The Hateful Eight at number... Sorry, that was unfair. I, I, I retract my boo. No, we'll, we'll get there because I think we're going <laughs> to review will. this movie down the road. So I don't want to say too much about it, um, except that it's phenomenal, I think. I mean, it really lit a fire under me. Uh, we saw it in the two-part Version, I believe. If you don't see this at a roadshow, it's one long cut. Is that 
Is right? it a shorter That's correct. movie? Yeah. 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 Uh, there's, I think, uh, like eight to 12 minutes difference between the two cuts. Interesting. But definitely the intermission and the overture are not in the normal showings. Yeah. When was the last time a movie was released in two separate cuts simultaneously like that? That was fascinating. Mm, clue? I don't know. Well, when was the last time a movie was released on uh, 70 millimeter you know, roadshow and roadshow style? Yeah. Um, yeah. The only part of this movie that I probably didn't care for was the overture because the opening scene is with the, um, and Neo Morricone score, this kind of low pan as we, you know, where I think we're, uh, there's a cross in this frame. Yeah, very and this, big this, cross. Uh, these horses are riding across the white snow from that very moment. I was struck by Hateful Eight. Uh, I should say that I hated Django Unchained. I know David loves Django Unchained. It really did not work for me. And whatever conversations uh, Tarantino was having about fiction, about race, about American history, I don't know. It did not work for me. And the Hateful Eight kind of confronts some of the same notions in new ways uh, and, and really is tremendous. I think it's, it's very connected to present day. This is a movie about everything we've been going through. Um, and yes, you know, Katie and I butted heads after seeing this about who should get to say these things and how they should be said. Um, because Specifically say extremely damaging yes, racial the hate, slurs. The hateful aid is profane. It's extremely violent. It might be his most violent movie at least his most gruesome but it's it's a harold pinter play it's like mammoth it's like agatha christie it's all of these things uh it's shot in 70 millimeter and it deserves to be because it is this uh, basically takes place in one location but this 70 millimeter opens up so many possibilities within this room so many dimensions to these characters that appear to have kind of archetypes and and one note to enter this room with and the conversations that come out of it are are i mean the the dialogue in this is is cut with uh uh you know with a what surgical knife whatever scalpel scalpel <laughs> that's right it's just like it's so precise every word um i was really taken by this and uh, i guess we'll review it down the line so we won't say too much but uh yeah. yeah, let Dave see the movie. Yeah, you'll, let you'll Dave see, see the it. movie. But I think David's got my back here. I think we both oh, really yeah. like this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and Samuel L. Jackson, always changing, but always the same. It's lovely. Give that man an Oscar. Jennifer Jesus Jason Christ. Lee, ferocious. You take him for granted. Kurt Russell, does his thing. It works. I don't know. I, I like Walton Goggins in it. dug so much shit in this, and we'll get there, but like... I think the reactions to Hateful Eight in the next few weeks, as people see this movie, are going to be well, polarizing and very vicious. Um, and I worry about that, but I hope it strikes people. I hope it rustles some, fe- ruffles some feathers. So rustles, rustles some feathers. Oh boy. Long hey. day. Long day. <laughs> well, let's not get too excited about a joke because David's going to put the look of silence at number four. Yeah. We don't have to talk about it in any greater length than we already have, but it's fucking amazing. This is, uh, uh, a runaway train documentary of the year. Uh, nothing else comes close. The, uh, the Snowpiercer of documentaries. <laughs> yeah, although I'll say I'm a bit worried because Phoenix, The Look of Silence, A Pigeon Sat on a Branch, The Duke of Burgundy, Eden. Uh, wow, I, all of those movies in a row. Uh, I saw at Toronto last year. And Toronto this year, I can think of maybe one or two movies that will... Uh, Will be ha- ha- will you know have a so you're worried about 2016 my list next year yeah Uh-oh. already well, Batman v Superman before Batman v Superman 
<laughs> oh yeah, that's a good point. Dawn and, of Justice. And, uh, yeah, Apocalypse, and think of all the. Oh superheroes. my god, that's what I forgot to say about Oscar Isaac and Ex Machina. I'm clinging to that oh after god. watching the X Men Apocalypse trailer. Oh my god! Oh Oof. god! That yeah. trailer. Oh boy. Yeah, it's uh, anyway. Neither here nor there. We are to number three, Katie. You have slotted in the room, and you were the only person slotting in the room. Not today. the room. Room. Let's room. be clear. Room. Yeah, that's right. Room. The room I have never seen and is also not eligible for this list. Fair um, enough. Room is a movie I did see at Toronto this year. So, uh, David, at least, well, uh, regardless of what you think about Room, it worked out yeah, okay for me. Yeah, but it came out me. this year. Yeah. It did come out this year. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's getting Oscar traction for uh, Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay, even though I think that children should never be nominated for Oscars. Um, and it's this story of a mother and child who have been uh, kidnapped and trapped in this room for five years, I guess the boy's entire life. Um, what I find that, like, that's, I mean, this movie was really emotional. I, I was one of many people who kind of walked out of it very, uh, you know, emotionally wrecked by it. But I think, like, the acting is really precise. I think it's made in this really intimate way that kind of gets you inside of what they're doing. Like, there's voiceover that I don't, you know, like, I could basically take or leave. Um, but even when it opens up and you kind of, uh, you meet Joan Allen's character, who I think she gives a really good performance, even William H. Macy, who's kind of in one scene of the whole thing. It's just, you know, it's not histrionic and it's not pulling on you in this way. Um, but it's also not, you know, even though it's telling a really dramatic story, it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel like it's trying to kind of grab you and pull you. It's just like laying the story out for you. And the dramatic story starts to feel very relatable and very like something that, you know, you wouldn't experience, but you kind of get the feelings that are at the core of it. I, just, I like how in tune it is with the feelings of the story it's telling and with its actors and how it's, uh, it's presenting them to you in a way that I think leaves a lot for the audience to discover and not kind of pushing this on you, which is, I mean, a lot of people had that reaction where they felt like really emotionally bludgeoned by room, but that's not, how it felt to me at all anybody else want to defend why room was not on their list I've you don't have to defend i it. have something to say about room <laughs> yeah he has something to say goodbye sink goodbye <laughs> wardrobe <laughs> that's all i mean this. i think you guys like room fine no room is, is room is yeah, lovely yeah. um i wasn't as moved as other people you know i was not brought to tears by room i i, I wasn't moved um, at all but. i do find <laughs> You know, the intimacy of the room, uh, that experience that they go through. I wanted more of it. I wanted more of everything from this movie. I really wanted to kind of feel the weight of this situation. And I think that's what was missing for me. And I do think the escape may, as, as that piece of music, whatever it's called, that we dwelled on in our review, um, it's, it's triumphant. Ball. Yeah. And maybe this is my own problem. Because it's from Moneyball, I totally, like, undercut the moment. Like, you feel... It's it is moving you. The music is working, and I don't know if the filmmaking is. And that movie, that moment, kind of sinks it a little. I don't know. Hmm. Room, room. Hmm. Well, patches. You're according to number three, the person who liked Mad Max Fury Road the most out of all of us. If there's anything you want to add to cap this off, <laughs> yeah, I lost my mind. Um, my fiance is going to be very upset with me. And I love that this is tearing your relationship. Apart. I worry yeah. about. I worry about. I wonder, well, I don't worry about him. He can quit. Robert Rodriguez, are you still working after seeing Mad Max Fury Road? Do you, <laughs> do you feel like you still have a career? I just, I worry about you because Mad Max Fury Road is basically all the Frank Frazetta, Edgar Rice Burroughs aping that people have attempted for the last like 10 or 20 years done to perfection, done in, in the John Ford mode. And the one scene that we didn't really talk about um, that I keep thinking of is the nighttime scene when they're getting their truck out of the the mud 
and mm-hmm. there's the tree mm-hmm. and like that feels so John Ford to me and and about character you know this is a chase film extreme action some um, um incredible design so imaginative and but here is just something about people trying to work together uh and the sniping thing when Furiosa you know, takes the gun and puts it on Mad Max. He's just going to be the guy holding it and takes out those guys from far away and all they, you know, the teamwork. There's something about that scene that really sums up what I love about Mad Max. It's working on all, it's firing on all cylinders. Ha, see it. Yeah. Ha. Is Mad Max the only movie on all four of our lists? It has to be. Probably. I think so. Yeah. There you go. Mad Max Fury Road. Apparently we all liked it. Like, apparently. Uh, like a lot of people. Uh David, yeah. Phoenix hit your yeah. number three slot. Yeah. Uh, probably, you know, for a lot of the reasons that Katie said, said earlier. Yep. There's uh, not too much more to say other than that. I uh, tried my best to not spoil the, the wonderful final scene. Yeah, how many people were cut. angry at you for putting that moment yeah, in the video? Out of context, like, <laughs> if you haven't seen the movie, it doesn't mean anything to you. Right, right. I mean, and... Uh, you know, my fear was only that people would then be inspired to see the movie. And I heard from one person who saw the video and then saw the movie and spent a lot of the movie trying to put the pieces together so that they could align for that opening scene that he saw. But uh, I did cut around some very, very key details, uh, which are left as a surprise. But I really, you know, as far as great movie endings go, that's it's really phenomenal stuff. Uh, but the rest of the movie is just as strong. I love how it plays on Vertigo. Um and, and recasts so much of the Hitchcock classic in an entirely new light and melds the Holocaust. I mean, we talk about Holocaust stories and telling them in a new way. Uh, this is the movie of the year in that sense and not Son of Saul, which I had a lot of problems with. Uh, and I, I, this is a lot pulpier, you know, for sure, uh, but no less of a vital movie for it. What's your answer to uh, people who think it's boring? Like patches. It's it's not boring. <laughs> I would never really think that. It's it's not boring. I just think it loses momentum. It's not as taut as it should be to really get and deserve that final moment. That's just me. Ooh. All right. We're to my number one, which is kind of surprised me, but is Animalisa. Mm. Um, for reasons that we might be talking about soon, because it's not the last time it's going to appear on this list. But for me, uh, the not only is it small and quiet, and I think is able to speak volumes uh, in the method that it's chose to tell its story, but I think that the way it unfolds and the understanding you come to about uh, the characters you're sympathizing with or empathizing with um, is really amazing. And it's something that is great to watch unfold because it's stop motion and looks really cool, but is also in a, like a mundane set- setting. Uh, but then afterwards, when you're sort of unraveling it in your mind, I think it opens up in a really cool way, or at least did for me. Uh, um, to add something really briefly on Anomalisa that yeah. I thought of when we were talking about Inside Out, uh, and, and I liked Anomalisa, but what David was saying about the messages of Inside Out feeling really um, facile, I think is the word you use. Um, that to me was Anomalisa. Like I felt like the conclusions Whew. that it got to at the end, especially for Charlie Kaufman, who has been so good at telling all these really naughty, moral, human problems in his movies that uh, the the note that it left me on at the end of Anomalisa, I was like, oh, that's as far as we're going to go with that. Okay. Um, which is kind of an interesting way to compare what most people think are the two best animated films of the year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is definitely a movie that I sort of feel like I 
latched onto from like the white male perspective and might be, you know, serving that up more so than it's serving up other existential crisis things. But I mean, I, I could, like I could a movie about white men, so. Yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, this one is like, like, sort of like shame, I think, played to something that it reflected something back at me that I wasn't expecting to be reflected back at me. And that mm. might have been what, what hooked me without sort of giving away what it's about. But let's uh, put Katie on hold for a second and jump to Patches' number two, which is also <laughs> Anna Melissa. <laughs> yes, I guess I'll just defend it against Katie. Um, I've heard several people walk out of this movie and be like, wow, they really, you know, let them off the hook. Or Charlie Kaufman really sides with this um, this writer character played by David Thewlis. Um, and he is questioning his relationships and kind of indulging in his privilege and his power, I suppose, over people in times and, um, and trying to figure out his life and that some people, I guess, just think that, yeah, he, he deserves to have that chance or he gets off, uh, he's off the hook, but I don't feel that way at all. I really, because Charlie Kaufman crafts these two characters, Michael Stone and then Lisa voiced by Jennifer Jason Lee. Who comes from Who's a total? Having quite a year. Yeah, um, she's all over our list. I kept, I keep thinking she's in Batman vs Superman, but that's Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter. Can Holly Hunter have a better year, a good year soon? <laughs> Please, um, any one of these years. Jesus. Um, but anyway, yeah, she was in Top of the Lake. That's true. True. She was. And they're are they doing a second one? Maybe she'll yeah. be back. Yes. Um, yeah, these two characters really, you know, Lisa comes from a totally different walk of life. Um, she's looking to, for someone to look at her. Um, she doesn't hear the same voices coming out of everyone's mouth as, uh, as Michael, the writer does, uh, voiced by Tom Noonan. You know, that's the beauty of this animated film that like they can have everyone's voice. This existential problem becomes, uh, something manifested uh, in reality for him. And just it, it, the mundanity of life and everyone's the same. Oh, and for Lisa, it's the total opposite. She's so colorful and bright, but she's shy. And, and he really awakens something in her um, and something that can be bad for him and something that seems like a total failure is, is something so positive for her. I find that really fascinating. And that's why I don't think that this movie is, is thin or obvious. It's complex and, and takes it down every different type of road and, and really kind of punishes the character you think Charlie Kaufman would be hoping he could, he could discover something in the end and, and have a revelation for. But the revelations are, are bad. And, of course, I mean, there's a craft element to this that I really love. I love animation and I love the, the tangible quality of these characters They're, that we get to see their mouthpieces move um that they're obviously puppets um but that the sets are so real and stark you know i think charlie kaufman makes a lot of great observations about hotels in this movie <laughs> and how they there are and there's a lot of good hotel stuff and the, how movie. they drown you in your problems because there's nothing to to divert your attention you can only think about your life in a hotel and and the animation obviously allows it to ebb and flow from reality to fantasy quite easily. I don't, I don't know. This really knocked me out. And I saw it at the end of Toronto among people who were laughing at this really intimate sex scene. So there was a lot of disturbance there. And I was still was, I don't know, I'm gobsmacked. I mean, that yeah. sex scene is yeah. really jarring. Like, I don't really blame people for laughing at it. It's a lot to see with puppets. I mean, that's true. But it's so, but it's so gentle. Yeah, it's... Well, gentle and it feels not, it's, it's real it's, to it's, the characters. It's sexy. It's sexy because of yeah. what it's doing for these two characters. I don't know. Well, yeah, Especially I mean, that's her. a 
sexy is a weird word to apply to something that you like two character developments. It's like saying a baby's sexy. No, it's not like that. I'm not saying babies are Patches, sexy. Why do you find no, babies no. sexy? What's wrong with you? You could just Patches. tell, you know, they're going to be sexy. That's what I meant. No. Sexy baby. Yeah. It's potential sex. Okay, this all went in a horrible direction. Katie. Yeah, guys. Hey. You're number two. Uh, I feel bad segueing on a sexy baby, but oh, it's Spotlight. Oh, man, you did that to yourself. Hey. It's Spotlight. Um, I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier. I, I'm so admiring of the way that this movie uh, tackles this story and these people and really uh, kind of embraces the ethos of its characters, which is that you're doing the work and you do what it takes to get the story across. And a lot of people have complained about kind of its lack of visual flair, but I think that's such a huge asset to the way it's telling the story and its themes and, you know, the way that it's about being in the muck on something and working in a shitty office and putting up with the kind of the collapse of an industry around you and doing it because it is worth it for the work that you're doing. Um, the cast is really great. I think, um, Patches, you're talking about the cast. And I think if you, if you would like acting and kind of really value actors as a major contributor to a film spotlight is such a great film for that. Not that Tom McCarthy doesn't do a really great job directing it, but the way that it's such a true ensemble, I find really rewarding again, yeah, because of how it reflects the way that the work kind of was actually done about not having a casting director Oscar. You know, this yeah. like finding all the players in this. I think uh, we touched well, yeah, about the this. Casting director, but, yeah, the minor roles in yeah, this, yeah, yeah. like the you know the people who yeah. you don't necessarily recognize. Like there is some really fantastic work going on there, and it's really canny about when to stop casting recognizable actors and in which roles. Like none of the victims of the priest abuse are played by super recognizable actors, which I think is really important. Um, I mean, this movie is just full of really smart decisions, um, and I like seeing something like that that's in the hands of people who are super competent like the team that uh, is on the spotlight at the golden globe or golden globes the boston globe good lord wow wow um spotlight is great for reasons that have literally nothing to do with the golden globes <laughs> all right and david you have a movie that would fit into katie rich's time schedule just perfectly <laughs> yeah and apparently did this morning it did. Uh, i squeeze it in in such a tiny window it was wonderful a movie uh, whose praises I've been singing for the entire year. Uh, it's true, because you saw it earlier before Sundance, and I think you broke the embargo and started tweeting about it then. So <laughs> I, I, There was no embargo. I uh, emailed Sundance and asked them if I could tweet about it, and they said sure. Um, but uh, uh, it's a film that I thought was going to be my number one film of the year until late August. But uh, it's Don Hertzfeld's World of Tomorrow, which you can go on Vimeo and rent for... 399 which you can watch as many times as you want for 30 days uh and you will want to watch it several times i assure you that deal will sound sweeter and sweeter with every play uh this is one of the best short films i've ever seen um and i had no second oh i mean initially i was in the very beginning i was like yeah can i put a short film on my top 10 and then realized i didn't give a fuck and that my my list would really be a fraud if uh this weren't on it because um it it I would say it stands toe-to-toe with most of the features this year, but it towers above them. Um, It is, uh, as briefly as possible, a 16-minute short film about a little girl named Emily who is one day visited by a third-generation clone of herself from the future who uh, needs something from the uh, Emily Prime, the original Emily, uh, but in order to get that something from her, takes her on a tour of the future and they look at the world and what it's become, and it becomes this absolutely heartbreaking, hilarious uh, look at mortality and uh, 
how it's impo- how it's impossible not to take so much of life for granted. And uh, like so much of Don Hertzfeld's work about this very bittersweet perspective on, on the world and our place in it, um, it is the most quotable film of the year by a significant margin. Uh, and by, like, I, most of the people who have latched onto it could probably tell you just about every line. Um, and gifable, if your uh, Twitter is to be believed. Very gifable. gifable. Uh, yeah, if, uh, if I was happy to contribute to the Kickstarter campaign to make a Blu-ray for this movie. Um, as happy as, I mean, Anomalisa was Kickstarted as well, I should add. So good, good going Kickstarter this year. Uh, but World of Tomorrow is just... It's just the best. Uh, I hold it near and dear to my heart, and I hope that people can find 16 minutes in their busy schedules to give it a go and then find another few hundred minutes to watch it over and over and over again, as they surely will. It really does have so much in it for being 16 minutes. I was kind of – when you were saying about debating, putting a short on your list, I was like, what is going to be in this movie that really compelled David to put it on there? But it crams in so much without ever feeling like it's just didactic, which is literally what it is. It's like a woman telling a child all of these things, but – the way that it's animated and the way that it's so well written doesn't make it feel that way at all. Um, and I was so relieved by how much there was sweetness to balance out the bitter because that was kind of what I was expecting based on knowing a very little about Don Herzfeld's work. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of feeling in that. There's a lot of uh, you know the fact that there's a real child in it. Um, I think kind of opens you up to the feelings that's kind of expressing at the end of it. Um, I really liked it too. Me too. Oh, I guess I got to do something else later today. <laughs> but we've uh, approached number one, everybody. Congratulations. Number None of you one. chose the same movie. So we're going to be talking about three different films. Katie, your number one was? Uh, yeah, I wasn't expecting David to diss it right before I got to number one, but my number one is Son of Saul. So, uh, oh, D- wow. David, we have not talked about this movie, so I'm going to be super interested to hear um, what you say about it. And I was kind of surprised by this, too. Uh, I saw it a little while ago. It's um, you know, I was really impressed by it, and then it stuck with me in this way. I don't think there's a movie that got a reaction out of me as much as this one did in terms of awe in the filmmaking style and obviously the subject matter, but also the way that it handled the subject matter is a movie set at a concentration camp which automatically makes a lot of people i think say no thank you which i can't blame anybody for like seeing a movie set at a concentration camp is really hard um a lot of people and this is something i've struggled with uh for my entire life as a cinephile uh think that there flat out shouldn't be movies set in concentration camp because to depict as we were talking earlier about the unimaginable to provide modern images of the unimaginable is somehow it cheapens them hmm. uh, and cheapens the atrocity. Um, and a lot of the movies on our list, Look of Silence in particular, yeah. are, are about how to visualize atrocities. Um, and I, I think it's a very interesting, fertile uh, area of discussion. And uh, I, I don't have that reaction that I, there shouldn't be movies about the Holocaust, just to say that. But. Well, and the way that this movie chooses to depict atrocities and the unimaginable is one of the things I found so interesting about it. It's shot in this incredibly shallow focus and is entirely telling the story of this one man who is um, on the Sonderkommando, which is the it's the group of prisoners who are charged with kind of ushering people into the gas chambers and cleaning up after them and dragging bodies and every horrible thing you can imagine happening. Um, and all of these things are happening in the background, but you're kind of seeing a limited amount of them. You've got such a tight focus on this actor, Geza Rorig, who is not even an actor, who I thought was incredible, um, and kind of seeing his experience of it, which you have to imagine is the way that someone would have to experience this stuff after a while. It's the only way to 
get through the day without, you know, completely collapsing into catatonic despair. Um, and the story is him encountering a boy who he says is his son and who has been uh, killed in the gas chamber, but he is able to kind of spirit away the body and he's trying to find a rabbi to give this kid a proper burial. But the story is more complicated than that. And what's interesting, what interested me so much about this movie is the way it gets complicated and the way that you don't know these characters and then you do. And there's so much information left away from you. And there's so much you can't know about all of these people, even to each other. Like they're all in these bunks together and trying to take care of each other. And you kind of see the empathy, the other men extend to Saul on this quest, but also how little room there is for something to be done. And the fact that it's happening in a concentration concentration camp heightens the stakes but it's such a human story on its own there's things that are motivating them are things that would motivate people under any circumstances um there are incredible set pieces related to some of the atrocities that are going on but also really incredible quiet moments it, uh, it's another really great ending from the year um and it just the way that it is so accomplished in its filmmaking and so specific and it, it's tackling this really hard to watch thing from a different angle and not just you know you hear about a man trying to bury his son you kind of think of this being one kind of quest and it was something really different and that kind of moral complexity of it is what has made it linger with me and it's 107 minutes so breezy yeah, oh, is I, it? I <laughs> well when you're watching the it in theater ending... it does not feel short i promise that <laughs> yeah i mean i think there's there's so many i mean this is the kind of movie about that will be written there, there may not be books written about it but it'll certainly be uh mentioned just about every book written about Holocaust cinema, and there are more than you might expect. Uh, but, you know, because of its aesthetic and, and how it sort of applies this immersive Dardenne brothers approach to a story of somebody running around Auschwitz. Um, Is it Auschwitz? I, I, couldn't, it very, I didn't remember if they I, specified. I, I don't know. I, I knew at the time. Um, but it it is numbing for me. I was left, you know, I, I didn't, I felt sort of hollowed out rather than any, like, overwhelming emotion. Um, I think that is partially by design. It reflects the experience of the the character who has sort of uh, dehumanized the people around him uh, in order to survive. I I don't know. I just I I had so was so conflicted about this movie that um, it never was able to become an experience or an experiential thing for mm. me. It was so locked and uh, you know it's semiotics that I wasn't able to really feel any of it i really struggled with the ending which i thought was terrible and mm. not good uh <laughs> because uh i think that it really it lends a lot of credence to arguments that movies like this shouldn't be made by reducing it to a very moral fable um hmm. it says like you know this this one i won't spoil what happens but it's very pat uh oh i didn't i didn't feel like it was pat uh, at all. i but, think but there's like there's two elements to the ending that i think we might be talking about different things maybe um but uh yeah it's it's a fascinating movie that f- despite its subject matter i'm sort of on my own time at least eager to see again just to engage with in my own way uh but i i i would feel glib offering much more than that at this point at least yeah i mean i didn't I- didn't mean to make this a smackdown of Son of Saul, but I had not uh, I had not heard anyone talk about it in anything other than like kind of like reluctantly admiring, I guess is the worst I'd heard because people were like, yeah, I saw it. I'm glad I did. I'll never see it again. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm <laughs> of two minds about it. I mean, I'm not one of those people who thinks that it's this great movie, but I've always really struggled with the the thinking that, you know, we shouldn't make movies about this. Mm. Uh, and so I I find myself somewhere in the middle. 
I think um, it's reasonable for anyone at this point to be like, how many more Holocaust movies can we make? Like, there have been a number of them. They've been definitive. There's, we've learned a lot. Um, but there are a lot of other atrocities in the world, which I think is why I found this so interesting, is that for me, it told that story in a new way. Well, I think that the issue has not been how many more should we make, but we've made a mistake by making any in the first place. And, like, you know, that they haven't been definitive because you can't possibly no. articulate the extent of this atrocity yeah. in, a, in a film. And I think back to something like Night and Fog, which is a 30-minute Alain Rene film that just shows sort of the residual uh, detritus from a concentration camp and is, you know, as powerful as anything. And then that maybe that should have been the last word. And But I, I think it's, it's still a, a fascinating subject for me. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm glad that Son of Saul exists if only to talk about it but can't say i love it yeah i feel like Fair enough. you know if we're, we, we question whether we should make holocaust movies anymore though you know maybe warner brothers doesn't need its nine picture scheduled through 2020 interconnected holocaust franchise uh maybe maybe we don't need to plan <laughs> that lord i don't know i'm really looking forward to phase three of the holocaust <laughs> jesus oh jeez <laughs> Um, anyway, too much. Patches, switch gears with your choice, 45 years. Yeah, my uh, number one movie of the year is Andrew Haig. Is, is it pronounced Haig or High? Hey, I thought. Hey? Hey. Haig? Yeah. Okay, that's good to know. You ma- hey, just like hey, Andrew like Haig. horses. Andrew Hey, hey, you made my favorite movie of the year. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I guess this is his follow-up to Weekend, but really it's his follow-up to um, that HBO show, Looking. Um, And this is the story of a couple, Kate, Jeff, Mercer. It's their 45th wedding anniversary because I think he got sick on their 40th and they didn't have a party. So for their 45th, they're going to have a party. Um, And they're a lovely couple. It's it's some really slow building intimate moments of of everyday life getting to know these these people. And then one day they get a letter that says something to uh, Jeff and his his world is turned upside down, a letter from his past in some ways. Um, And it complicates their relationship. But what's interesting is it doesn't, you know, convert their relationship into melodrama. Suddenly everything is is not, you know, the rain's not falling. The world is not falling apart for them. This is this is a slow build. This is a about a relationship it's about understanding it's about what goes into love uh and why a couple would last 45 years and what that's built on and if that foundation can be stripped away and and cracked um i just found i mean what charlotte rampling does in this movie is very hushed and very delicate uh and very troubled and it's probably the best performance i've seen in a decade. I mean, I was blown away by Charlotte Rampling in this movie. This is my Carol, I suppose. Um, mm. And and I think Tom Courtney is really good, too, as as Jeff, um, playing this guy who's trying to keep it together, who's obviously been shaken but why, by what this letter contains. I don't want to spoil anything because this movie hasn't come out yet. And I think it comes out at the end of the month, around now, when really? you're listening it's to this. that long? Yeah, and it's going to be a pretty under- small release. I think it's IFC. I never understand why... It's- Really small movies like that do that late in the year release. Um, they need more time for more people to love them. But I think I think Andrew Hayf just finds all the right angles for this. The wide shots when we need to breathe and the close-ups when we need to see not a twinkle in Kate's eye, but a twitch or both 
at different times. And yes, exactly. Or like even when she's cutting vegetables, it means something. Or even when she's shopping through town and living her everyday life, trying to keep it together. This movie takes place in the week leading up to their big party. And there's just so many questions. It's it's the celebrating an anniversary raises them already. And when you have something introduced into the stream to make you question things, it's uh, it's it's heartbreaking. Obviously, I'm probably bringing a little bit of myself to this movie as someone who's about to or I'm a year out from getting married. So that's a big deal. But this movie is asking you, like, why would you ever, you know, invest in a relationship like that? Is it worth it? And what choices uh, well, the choices you make early on will come back 45 years. And uh, I think that's tremendous. This is just a really delicate, beautiful character film. I adore it. Very good. <laughs> yes, I also like 45 years a whole lot. That's a lot of agreement. Yay. I've been watching you go nuts as Charlotte Rampling keeps not making like people's list of best performances or something and how much it's hurting you. So I hope... It does pain me. I hope it gets better. It does pain me. There's, I mean, I just think... This is the best performance in 10 years. I don't know. Nominate it, please. <laughs> and finally, David Ehrlich's number one choice is the tale of a young aspiring pop star who discovers how to fix her father's robot, Jim and the Holograms. <laughs> <laughs> There's a robot in Jim and the Holograms? Of course. <laughs> yes. Synergy. I what? I did not know that. <laughs> Uh, no, my number one film of the year is obviously uh, We Are Your Friends, <laughs> um, which suffered a, a terrible fate at the box office. But, really did. Uh, I, I still love tremendously. Guys, Carol uh, jokes no. are not going to get old, even in 2016. <laughs> uh, no, my favorite film of the year is Carol. It is uh, my favorite film of the last 10 years, probably. Um, certainly... My favorite film of the decade so far, so I don't know how far back it goes or if it matters. But, <laughs> we need the exact uh, moment. I, what was it? It's, it's I don't know, but this and Certified Copy, maybe this is not a film. In the history of us doing podcasts, these are the movies that I want you to take away from it. The new movies, at least, more than any others. Um, I don't really know at this point what there is to be said about Carol that we haven't said in our review or in any of the pieces that have been written about it. Um, only that it's still playing, and I think only eight screens at the time that we're recording this. Wow. Uh, it's already Ugh. grossed more than a million dollars. It's a slow, very slow rollout, uh, and we'll continue to expand to new markets over the course of the next month or two. Uh, and I actually possibly could not recommend it any higher, so uh, please go see it. And, also, Carol uh, something is something that, unlike Certified Copy, and this is not a film, I think, that is kind of in a language of storytelling that's very accessible to people. Like, it's not experimental. It's not kind of playing... Well, it's English, and it's not, it's not meta. It's not kind of playing with the format of film. It's like a very uh, traditionally told kind of story, uh, but it's the craft and kind of the feeling and the, uh, yeah, the thought that in goes into way. it that's got David and a lot of people so captivated by it. I, w- I will say that uh, you know, this is a movie that uh, it just, you know, decked me on first viewing. Um, I did not need a second go through, although I've had that and third and fourth and so <laughs> on, uh, to, to understand the power that it had for me. But I have heard from a number of people who were, you know, on the fence, leaning positive, but not quite feeling that reaction so strongly after their first viewing that it really opened up to them, uh, on, subsequent viewings and their second viewing in particular and i can absolutely see why i think that the subtlety of the movie the nuance of its expression um just how much is going on when 
it, I think having your bearings can be really helpful. And so uh, if you see it and there's something about it that you you appreciate it or something that's gnawing at you about it, but you're not quite at that place of losing your brain for it, but you might want to be, you might want to felt something that it didn't quite provoke from you, I'd recommend seeing it again uh, and see what you take away from it. Because I think uh, this is a movie that more than almost any other deserves the that sort of closer look and attention and uh i hope you give it to it that's definitely where i am with it which is why i'm looking forward to a second viewing even though i really am torn about watching the dvd screener because that just doesn't seem right Ugh, it's gross i know <laughs> I'm, i apologize in advance it's also longer than 88 minutes i hate to break it to you oh <laughs> damn it too bad no, gotta make some time for carol and it will you know even i i couldn't believe it uh after seeing phoenix but it has an even better ending than Phoenix. Oh. It has the movie ending of the year and uh, of many years. And uh, it's, it's really difficult to spoil because uh, without context, it would not mean very much. But <laughs> uh, yeah, if, even if you're flagging on Carol, I promise you the last 10 minutes will, will you know, will be a doozy. They're pretty great. Well, guys, that's that was 2015. We're going to do a quick wrap-up and let people know where you could find uh, more of what's on the internet. Start with myself, because I'm talking right now. I'm Dave yeah. Gonzalez, DA70 is my Twitter handle. I had my top five movies as Inside Out, Ex Machina, Mad Max Fury Road, Carol, and Annamalisa. And I'm going to hand it off to Miss Katie Rich. Oh, do I have to list my own top ten? I, I could list it for up. you okay. if you don't uh, have it. Okay. You I got don't it? have it in front of me. Uh, no, here, I'll do it. Okay. I can find it. Um, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com or somewhere uh, probably rewatching Carol or also on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. My top ten were from ten, The Martian, Creed, Grandma, Mad Max, Fury Road, Diary of a Teenage Girl, Mistress America, Phoenix, Room, Spotlight, and Son of Saul. All right. Matt Patches. Yes, I am Matt Batches. I'm the entertainment editor of Thrillist.com, and I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. And my top ten of the year were The Big Short, number ten, number nine, Spotlight, number eight, The Look of Silence, number seven, While We're Young slash Mistress America, forgive me, Uh, number six, Ex Machina, (laughs) number five, A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence, number four, Hateful Eight, number three, Mad Max Fury Road, number two, Anomalisa, number one, 45 Years. And finally, the one who liked Carol, Mr. David Ehrlich. The one, not the only one. <laughs> uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm a staff writer at Rolling Stone. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. Uh, and my top ten films of the year were uh, Fury Road, Mistress America, Kumiko the Treasure Hunter, Eden, The Duke of Burgundy, A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence, The Look of Silence, Phoenix, World of Tomorrow, and Carol. And you can see... All of those, as well as the 15 films that came in spots 11 through 25 on my video countdown of the year's This video gets a shout-out in my piece about Star Wars spoilers, if it, if it made Ooh, it through the edit, because it was the first thing to spoil something in motion for me. Thank you. Oh, wow. <laughs> You're welcome. It's an honor. Don't worry. I say that it's a wonderful <laughs> video. I praise it, but I'm also totally no, defeated by it. It is really wonderful. 
Also, guys, by the time you're listening to this, you could hear how uh, Patches' this whole Star Wars experiment oh, yeah. uh, worked out. Plus, the entire year's worth of podcasts at fightinginthewarroom.com. As and you could have this cool little search thing. It's a little, uh, you know, spyglass, and pipe in any movie or star that we referenced on this podcast, and it'll bring up any other podcast where we mention them for a significant amount of time. Thank you so much for listening, and of course, we'll be back next year because uh, we are just gonna keep getting old and watching lots of movies <laughs> that's the overarching theme of this <laughs> podcast yeah. 2016 is gonna be a big one for our podcast it's gonna yes. be it's gonna be big i think so what's gonna change oh a lot of things it's gonna be a big year but david's <laughs> not gonna like any of the movies <laughs> as he's predicted i'm gonna do what patches did for star wars but just with all movies, <laughs> all uh, movies. i'm gonna go a whole year without liking movies it's gonna be great i know, just, I, know. I thought you're just gonna spend a whole year not watching anything but carol The price of my love is not a price that you're willing to pay You cry in your tea which you hurl in the sea When you see me go by Why so sad? Remember we made an arrangement when you went away Now you're making me mad Remember despite our estrangement I'm your man You'll be back Soon you'll see You'll remember you belong to me You'll be back Time will tell You'll remember that I served you well Oceans rise Empires fall We have seen each other through it all And when push comes to shove I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love da 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 Forever